Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at OfficeHours.Global. Our first hour is general discussion about video and virtual production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk a little bit about next year's conferences. What do we want to cover and What's how that? we might want to cover it? And okay. Chris's mic is opened while he's yelling things out while I'm doing my intro. So anyway, anyway, so off we go. All right, let's jump into the questions, Mitch. First one in from me. Um, audio via the HDMI through your ATAM or directly into Zoom via USB. Pros and cons. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, the setup is something that we typically see, but uh, in my case, um, I have my XLR from my mic going into my Sony camera and then via HDMI into the first channel on my um, ATAM Mini Extreme and out to uh, to Zoom. Um, that's one way to do it. And then the other way would be some type of uh, preamp, like a mix pre, uh, into the mix pre, use the USB out in directly into your computer and select that as your audio source. So I'm just interested in what people see as a, a more convenient way to do it and a better way to do it. Go ahead, Mike. So some of the things I use to guide this decision have to do with uh, how can I get a digital signal and how can I keep that signal in sync with the video. So uh, I want to avoid the analog whenever possible. So I'm not using the ATEM mic one or mic two input. So uh, if I can bring it in via HDMI and that keeps it as a digital signal. And then the other um, deciding factor is whether I want to do any EQ on that. So sometimes if that's in the box, you can do that before you send it. Um, the ATEM certainly has some good EQ settings and some dynamics in there. Or if you have an external mixer um, or software control, then you can bring that in through USB. Hey, go ahead, Mark. So I think a lot of it might just be convenience. If you have a Mix Pre 3, you can just reach over to a dial and make the adjustments. If you're going to use it in the ATEM, you might have to switch to a different screen. You might have to go back to the camera as a source to make any adjustments. Good, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that one of the things that's really important is preamp. Um, you know, your preamp is is really important. Of what you're going to how that that mic at some point has to be converted to digital. So where is that preamp going to be, and what is the quality of the preamp? I think is really important. Um, that's why my the first thing that mine goes into is of course the mix pre. As was stated before, if you put it straight into the camera, you're going to stay in sync. You know, because it's going to be coming together there. So you are going to have to manage it if you're digitizing it in, in a separate way. Um, you know, theoretically, I could do a mix pre to the A10 Mini Extreme if I wanted to, and had those embedded together. Um, but uh, but I choose to to have it uh, work slightly differently. Just go to USB straight in. Um, I, this also create allows me to create a more complex connection. So I have the show coming back to me through my mix pre into my ear. Um, and I'm able to speak into the show because I have a USB connection directly with the mix pre, as opposed to I wouldn't have that that connection if I had done it with uh, through the ATEM. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, I swallowed the wrong way just as you came to me. I just did that last night. I all had a choked huge up. Fit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, you missed the opportunity of running it through a mixer, as Alex said, and adding more uh, control to your uh, microphone that way, because most of the controls on a camera uh, that go into an HDMI, uh, you know, don't have a lot of other than level don't have a lot of control you can't add you know rim shots 
anything like that. So. <laughs> well, you could. You could just do analog out of there into your yeah, camera. I guess so. you could. Yeah. You could always add it. But the, the, the big thing is that two-way, you know, that being able to have something. Because what's really nice is that I can control the volume of how I hear myself versus how I hear the, the panel and everything else through the mix pre, which is useful for me. All right, next question. And it's from Paul Przykowski in Gainesville, Florida. What is the technical term for the flicker on a screen when recording a monitor or TV with a video camera? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Well, in the old days, when you had interlaced uh, cameras, uh, the flicker could be the interlaced showing because the camera and the uh, TV set may not be in sync. So yeah, the second part of the I, answer I is interlaced. it's a sync issue. Pardon yeah, me? go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's synchronization between the scan of the camera and the refresh rate of the monitor, or in some cases, the backlight. Uh, if it's using a uh, dimmed backlight, LED backlight, or a fluorescent backlight, uh, you can get into beat frequencies between the sample rate of the uh, sensor in the camera and the uh, switching uh, pulse width modulation of the backlight of the TV or the refresh rate of the TV. There's two sorts of flickers that can get involved there. And so you can just, um, uh, and the technical term is flicker or beat frequencies. <laughs> Yeah, we call it our breathing sometimes. Sometimes that flicker is so slow uh, because it creates an artifact where it'll just be breathing. It'll be slightly moving in and out of focus, like just like my focus is going between the background and the foreground. I got to slap my cannon around a little bit and see if I can straighten it out. But yeah, that's uh, the, the way to, to solve that is to change the uh, shutter angle on your camera if you have that uh, capability. And uh, a, a bigger shutter angle <clears throat> will be less likely to beat against the high frequency refresh rate of the uh, backlight on your monitor. I go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. The technical term is flicker. And um, a little bit of history quickly. When I started working on the Computer Chronicles show in the mid 80s, uh, scan converters, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't exist. And we would. As computers got more advanced and television technology stayed the same, um, there was nothing that we could do because we shot computer screens with the camera. That was all that we had available to us. And as the computer got higher quality, we would just have to say, really sorry for the fact that it's flickering in your home. Trust us, it looks great here. And it was frustrating. Eventually, scan converters came around and we were able to move to those. But uh, yeah, it's just flicker. Yeah, I was trying to. I was. I was going to ask. Um, I don't. I don't know if people have played at all with uh, uh, Chat GPT. Um, let's see if it's going to do something. Oh, no. We uh, when I when someone asks me a question now, I, I have a tendency to throw it in there. If, if anyone hasn't played with it yet, uh, Chat uh, uh, GPT GPT is an AI thing that'll answer the question. So I, you know, so we, so you can ask actually ask it. We had. There's someone on a list that I'm on that asked ChatGPT to write a exporter for Maya to export FBX files, and it did it. <laughs> like, and he said, I was really excited for, for a minute and then depressed. <laughs> but, uh, uh, let, me, let, me read, let me read it to you just because I'm just introducing everybody to it. The right answer now. to Flickr? 
It's, it's, yeah, I said, I, I typed in what is the, uh, the technical term for flicker on a screen when recording a monitor or TV with a video camera. Um, the, uh, what Chappie, we'll just, we'll just measure this every once in a while, not, not all the time. The technical term for the flicker that can occur when recording a monitor or TV screen with a video camera is screen refresh rate synchronization or more commonly, rolling shutter effect. Um, the type of flicker is caused by the, the, the way the most vi that most video cameras capture images, which is by scanning across the scene from top to bottom rather than capturing the entire image at once. Because of the scanning process, the video camera uh, may not be synchronized with the refresh rate of the monitor uh, or TV screen, resulting in a flicker or rolling effect of the recorded image. <laughs> that that is a very complete answer. It is. And very accurate. It's very Rolling shutter, yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, I guess we can close this up now. <laughs> We're not going to make it to the thousandth show, are we? Yeah. Well, Which is what we need is another. We need, we need to. We'll get. We'll get Mid Journey to create another panelist um, that occasionally raises Mid Journey to create another panelist on the on on the window. They'll occasionally just raise their hand, and then we have to do speech to text or so text to speech, and we'll just raise its hand. We have to build this little the the, the AI bot to answer the question, and it'll just raise its hand and just go again to say it. <laughs> Alex, I will, I will tell you, um, let, let you in on a little secret. For some time now, there are questions that have been submitted that were generated by chat, chat GPT. The questions. Oh, we, I, so. In this show. Yeah. The, the funny thing they've, is, is. They've been sneaking in. Well, the funny thing is when we were, when we were talking, I didn't sneak these in, but when we did, uh, um, when we were talking about polarity and phase, I asked chat GBT, I, I just said, give me 10 questions about polarity and phase as they relate to audio. And it just gave me all the questions. We could have run the whole show on those questions. What's like, it was, it was all like, how does it, how does it affect, uh, you know, cancel is it, cancel is, you know, cancel is it, how does it affect balanced audio? How does it affect, you know, like it, it was, uh, it's, it's a pretty, it's both exciting and scary all at the same time. So um, anyway, lots of fun. All right, next question. Next question in from David Brady in New York, New York. I keep missing the technical explanation of the black level issue with ATEM and Zoom, but can demonstrate it by streaming from both the ATEM encoder and via Zoom. This is an ongoing discussion at work. Can the panel lay it out in layman's terms? Go ahead, Muddy. Well, the, the term that I've heard used is crushing the blacks. And my understanding, and because I only have a layman's understanding of the actual problem, I think this will be helpful as far as the terminology. But my understanding is it has to do with the color range, whether it is a full color range or a partial color range. And so as a result, it's bringing levels kind of into that partial range to meet that. So that's my understanding. And it also sounds like we will be mobilizing soon to address this issue, or at least yes. to request this issue. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, partial V uh, full uh, coming from the ATAM. And uh, I'm and, very interested to hear what uh, Alex has planned. So, um, so basically, what, what we think is the issue here is full range video is zero to 255. Uh, partial range video is 16 to 235. Now, what we think is happening is, is that what, what should happen is, is that, you know, this should be remapped. But what we think Zoom is doing is just going, I'm going to go across here and just knock, make these all black and these all white. So I think that we think that it's just, it's just sub, it's just, it's just saying this is all black. Anything below 16 is black. 
anything above two thirty five is white. And we need first we need to test it, but we believe that Zoom's just simply cutting it off, not remapping it, but cutting it off. Um, our uh, belief is that this is a bug <laughs> that, that, that Zoom should fix. Uh, it does not occur, for instance, if you look at it in scope, you know, OmniScope, or or if you look at it in QuickTime, you're seeing the full, you, you don't see those crushed areas. So um, I'm working on being able to to quant, uh, quantify it so that it's very clear and be able to you know, send images. Um, but one of the things that we're going to do as a group <laughs> starting next week is we're going to hit the problem from two different ends. We're going to request that Zoom uh, give us a button that says partial or full. And we're going to request from Blackmagic that they give us a button in the 810 that says partial or full. <laughs> so, so, so then we can, then we just, just see who, and we'll see who gets there first. <laughs> so, so that, you know, um, but, but I think that, and the goal, you'll see that we're going to start kind of at, we're going to, uh, starting probably not Monday, but, but probably next week, probably Tuesday or Wednesday, we'll start sending in the emails. We'll send out like, Hey, this is the thing we've all decided to, to, to fix this, this, this week. And we'll all make a request, feedback requests to a company or, you know, like, Hey, we'd be really good if you fix this, this, this one problem. Um, and, uh, I think that if we act in as a group, we can move things along a little bit faster. So a lot of people, this, they look at how many feedback um, how many times they get a feedback for a certain thing and then they make a decision about whether they should pay attention to it. So if we outdo everybody else on the suggestions, I think that we can um, we can hopefully move things forward and get people's attention. So we're going to experiment with that and and uh, and refine our, our ability to do that uh, starting next week. So stay tuned. All right, uh, let's go into the um, uh, next question. Continuing with Douglas Carmichael, the European Union spent... 387,000 euros on a metaverse event and only six users attended. Um, is this a consequence of the medium message or both? Uh, marketing. <laughs> marketing and content. The interest in the content. Go ahead, Chris. Maybe this is just technology that solves a problem that doesn't exist. Yep. I mean, I think that, I think that the, um, again, the, for an average, I'll, I'll say for an average layman, three hundred and sixty-seven thousand euros is a lot of money. Um, for a government trying to figure things out, and this is what I learned over a long time. It's it's not it's not, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> like you know, there's not it, it. That's the flights to one EU meeting. You know, like it's not. It, it, you know, so the the thing is, is that it's not a. Uh, I think a lot of times we get ourselves caught up in how much money was spent for one thing. And many companies and many governments and many organizations spend lots of money on trying to figure something out there. They want to, they don't want to wait until it's already a big thing. They want to see like, does it work? I mean, 387,000, I've worked on things that uh, were an experiment that were more than that, you know? So, so the thing is, is that, you know, that, so this is them, you know, trying to make sure that they meet their market down the, down the path. So I, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't throw too much shade on, on that. I think that the problem is, is the people who are interested in that subject matter probably don't, don't know anything about VR. <laughs> you know, so, so, if, you know, if you're an EU, if you're doing an EU meeting, you better be really looking at 18 to 35 as your target audience and then geeky ones that, so you have to like promote it in a very specific place, which is you probably had to run ads practically in, um, the metaverse to find enough people to show up. And they probably just didn't do that. They probably put it together. They ran some press releases through traditional media and they're just not going to find the people. So there's, I think it was 
probably more marketing they could have found it. But right now, the reality is, is that almost no one's showing up for met the metaverse. I mean, when they do, whether they're doing concerts or everything else, you, you sometimes see big numbers, but usually those numbers are total cumes, and usually they're after enormous amounts of PR to do that. Like when, when and, and it was during COVID when people were more experimental, they're less experimental now. So I think that, I think that it's not a, um, uh, I wouldn't throw too much shade on it. I think that people are going to keep on experimenting with it. Um, I think it's going to take a long time to, for it to um, mature. I will not say that it won't mature, but I will say that it will take much longer than I think it, people have to be pretty patient with it because um, it's pretty hard. And I think that, you know, I hate to say it, but I think Apple will probably be the one that pushes it forward because they have a tendency to bring taste <laughs> with with them. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like that, that tends to be the people who go, oh, it works. You know, it, it's okay that it doesn't have any legs. <laughs> Apple, Apple probably won't. They'll, they'll either create legs or they will make it not feel weird when you do it. Like the, I think a good example that I see is the emojis that Apple built. Somehow emojis always feel like a cooler version of yourself and all the other ones feel like a dorky version of yourself. <laughs> like, yeah, and I don't know, I don't quite understand how, like, it just seems like it's such a simple thing. But every time I look at everybody else's emojis, you're like, oh, it's kind of stupid looking. And the Apple ones look cool and they have kind of a cool whatever. And, and that, that takes a, a lot of work. You know, it's not like, that's not a minor thing. That's like a hundred, every one of those little heads um, designs probably is, you know, hundreds of hours of work. You know, and that's the and that and they put that into it. So I think that we'll probably see more next year as, as Apple rolls out, if if Apple does. Next question. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Netflix has approved the Sony FR7. Is this a big deal? Go ahead, Courtney. No, not a big deal. I mean, that particular camera is um, would probably be used in certain situations where they need a remote head or a gimbal. You know, a uh, jib mounted camera it'd be perfect for that kind of stuff or for unique situations where they have to hang the camera down through the sunroof of a car or something and rotate it 360 degrees for specialty shots um they use cameras like that on uh, here's here's a dirty secret on dexter uh we were we eventually transitioned from film to uh, sony cameras panavised sony cameras from panavision uh and they would shoot all the stuff the traveling stuff in cars on a sony EX3, which is a little camcorder. <laughs> that was my big X camera one at one time. X the EX3 yeah, was like, oh, yeah. we're pulling out the EX3. <laughs> well, we shot a lot of the running shots on the little EX3, you know, and, and the, 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 as long as we were still on the Sony cameras. Eventually they transitioned, I think, the last year or so into uh, Alexis, but uh, they do it all the time for specialty situations where you have to get the camera into a tight spot uh, where you can't fit a full head and the camera operator into it. Uh, I can see it being used there. You go ahead, Mitchell. It's, uh, I think, uh, significant for two reasons. On the Netflix side, it's significant because Netflix has been a little bit gear snobby about what they would allow to be uh, used to shoot uh, the content for their programs. And uh, the FR7 is just below what I would consider to be uh, gear snob territory. Um, it's below the uh, the Venice and the Aries and uh, the Reds. Um, the other part that's interesting about this is that the FR7 is a camera to be contended with. I think that this signals something happening at Sony and where they're targeting their products. I think they've made a decision here from a marketing standpoint that uh, it's okay to have mid-level uh, cameras that have great pictures uh, be accepted in the industry. I don't see it big for films like uh, Courtney was saying, 
but I do see it as a market-changing device. Yeah, it, it's a it's interesting. So the FR7 has the same sensor as the FX6. Um, so that's that they are the same, exactly the same sensor as the FX6. And um, Sony has spent a lot of energy on making sure that it gets accepted into the film world. So they have a lot of different pe- different groups that that um, certify things looking at it. Uh, it's full frame sensor. Um, it, it can also record in log and it has a couple different formats that it can do. So it's not just a, a, a small camera there in that fa- in that fashion. Um, I, I do. I think that Courtney's right that it'll probably be a a handful of specialty shots that you put this in that's really great, like overhead shots or car shots or other things that for a car, it'd be really great because you throw it in the front corner of a, of a car, um, you know, for those shots where they're driving in the car, you throw it in the front corner and now you can finally move it around because all, all the time you, you always get this thing when, when you do those front corner shots where they're not quite framed the way you, you want them to, you know, and, and it, but you're already shooting, you can't make any adjustments and, or making those adjustments would take, you know, an hour, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and an hour of 30 people on the clock watching you re, re-gear something is expensive. You know, so, so it's an expensive decision. So a lot of times you, you, you kind of shorten that decision. Um, I think it's a game changer when it comes to online stuff, though. I mean, I think for YouTubers, I think, and I think that the certification, so Netflix aren't the only snobs. There are, there is definitely a group of YouTubers that are, snobby about you know what what hardware they use they're shooting with reds they're shooting with aries they're shooting with you know a b- big cameras um and so i think that that's and sony pays a lot of attention to them they they seed um sony seeds a lot of uh the the the, the smaller a7s's to you know they've done that a lot <laughs> to, to you know they're paying a lot of attention to influencers and i think that but going from being if it became something that all YouTubers were using, didn't have any certifications, the film industry would then be snobby and say, oh, we're not going to use the YouTube camera. But if they can get YouTube, um, the film industry to certify it, they can now go, oh, look at this. This is, a, this is certified by Netflix. You could use it for your next YouTube thing. And, and it comes the other direction. All of these things become important when you're trying to do marketing. And um, But I will say beyond the marketing, it's one of the coolest cameras that's come out in years. I mean, it's, you know, and... and um, we're hopefully going to get Noah on soon. Noah just got his. I know Blue Melnick has a couple now. Um, Noah got his like yesterday or the day before. I think he was like, it's coming or it's here or something. So, um, and, uh, so I think that we'll see if we can get one. Josh, we should see if Noah is willing to come on, maybe even reach out to Blue, see if they'll come on next week and maybe make one of the second hours about the, about the camera. Cause I'd love, I haven't, I've gotten to test the FX6, not the, not the FR7. So I'd love to get some more input. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, they start panning uh, the camera inside of a car. They're going to make the effects people very happy. <laughs> panning's not the problem. It's zooming. Zooming is the problem. So, um, yeah. Well, and it depends on whether you're, you know, if you're, if you're doing, you know, sometimes you can do those, you know, if you look at those, uh, whatever, the karaoke, car karaoke, that's where they're at. Well, they're not driving. They're, they're on a flatbed. <laughs> they're on a flatbed or they're being dragged. They're either being dragged or they're, or they're on a flatbed being pulled along in, in Hollywood to, to do that show. Um, next question. From Cindy Drozda in Erie, Colorado. I'm not happy with the chroma key that I get with VMix. Sparkly and stair-stepped edges. Green fabric screen 18 inches behind me. Is there a trick to it? And would an ATEM do it better? Go ahead, Chris. Cindy, there's multiple questions there. Number one, I would say that, yes, the ATEM will do it better. Uh, number two, 18 inches is probably way, way too close. My 
rule of thumb when I'm, and I don't do this, but I direct people, is when I turn off the key and the fill, I want the person to be in silhouette with the green behind them. So try that. And, and what you're looking for there is you're looking for separation. You're looking for spill. Because if there's green spilling on your face when you turn off your key and fill, you're not going to get a great key. Um, the last thing, uh, if you really want to learn about green screen, the best tutorial you're ever going to find was made by Alex about 15 plus years ago. It's called The Road to 1080p. It's hard to find, but if you're Google, if you, you know, talk nice to your Google, you'll find it. The Road to 1080p, it is without a doubt the best uh, chroma key explanation and tutorial you're ever going to find for doing really, really excellent keys. Until soon. <laughs> Within the next couple of weeks, we're going to, I'm going to get access to the stage and we're going to, we're going to do some, we're going to do I've been asked, I've been asking you been to busy. redo that for dec uh, a decade now. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, we're going to do but it. But it's do good. It. It's still good. We're going to do a live Your whole one. explanation of four by four is amazing. Yeah. We're going to do a live lab um, in, in, uh, we did, we used to do labs. We're going to do a live lab and um, we'll see how far we can push it depending on what I, how, how much of the stage I can get. It'll either be me pulling something up inside the stage or because I think the stage right now is white. So if it's green, we'll have a, have more fun. Go ahead, Mark. So I'm a far from an expert in green screen, but I have noticed that distance is your friend to get rid of spill. I will also say that with the ATEM, if you're going to have multiple cameras, you need to use a key for each camera, I believe. So that's going to use up a lot of your keys if you want to do other things with them. With the Ultimat, you get to build that whole shot in a separate system and bring it in as a camera. So it frees up some of those keys for the ATEM to do other things. And go ahead, Mitchell. Sparkly and stair-stepping uh, usually points to a problem with the, uh, the, the format you're shooting the, uh, the green screen with. Uh, if the camera doesn't have enough detail, it's going, to, uh, it's going to do things just like that. So you really need something that's, least, that's doing, at least doing 422 uh, so you have enough information there because uh, otherwise the aliasing is going to show up where it doesn't have enough information to be able to uh, separate the green out. Uh, the other part is, uh, like was just stated, uh, spill coming back on you from behind also confuses uh, the algorithms. And if you run a really good um, uh, screen after you fixed your lighting, after you fixed your camera, uh, try that new Ultimat box. They've got one that's for like four or $500 that works a treat. Yeah, the the Ultimate box will be better than than the ATEM. The ATEM will be better than the VMix as far as the as far as the math being used. The VMix, I believe, is still using chroma key, um, which is the most basic way to do a key, um, and one that's absurdly simple um, and should not be used by anybody. Um, you know, it's the the chroma key should have been retired ten years ago when we figured out how to. When, when processes were fast enough, <laughs> Chris said 20 years ago, probably. So basically, chroma key is just identifying a certain color with a range and then pulling it out. And that's just like, that is like a, I don't know, it's like it's like trying to fillet with a, with a you know, hacksaw. You know, like it's just, it's just really, really rough. Yeah, chainsaw in there trying to do a fillet. So, so it's, it's really not the way to do this. And it's really embarrassing that um, most people have been spending so much time with chroma key. Uh, it's just laziness at this point. The math is all out there. There's books on it. There's equations on it. There's all kinds of things on the, on this. It's not hard to do. And it's an amazing <laughs> that, that these software keyers aren't better than they are because we built one that, that did less than that and was more effective in 15 years ago that ran on a laptop and would do 444 keying. You know, it just really, it isn't, it isn't hard to do. Um, 
what the the ATEM switcher does is the ATEM switcher uses a linear key, which means that it averages the red and blue or the red and green, depending on which way you're going, and then it subtracts that from the green. Um, and so that's the that's the simple math of what it what how it pulls that key, and that key is better than what's happening in vMix. Um, the you have a little bit of obviously a little bit of control, mat control also within it, but you have a lot more mat control in the Ultimat. Um, now the stair stepping could be from the fact that you may be using a web camera. If you're not using a web camera, then we'll talk about what's happening there. But the stair stepping oftentimes, the 422 will create some stair stepping. The 420, which could be what you're doing, could be creating a lot of stair stepping. And so that's, you know, so that's a quarter of the resolution. It ends up being about the quarter of the resolution of the full frame is color and you won't notice it in regular color, but you notice it when you have to key it. So, so having, you know, again, 444 is the best. This, let's see, this, this camera there, uh, whoops, this camera here. Oh man, I, I'm backwards. I still can't figure this. That camera there does 444. <laughs> At one time, it was the only 444 camera in Northern California. Um, and that's what we did the road to 1080p with. And so, um, the, uh, Anyway, the, the point is, is that you want to get 444 if you can. You won't be able to do that. It's really expensive. 422, if you have a 422 camera that is 4K and, you, and you're able to run it through a 4K, you know, Ultimat, and then you scale that down, you're going to get effectively a 444 key. And so um, it's not perfectly 444, but it's pretty darn close um, once that anti-aliasing happens because of the oversampling. So those are things, again, all the other things that people said, you want to be at least three feet from the from the uh, screen, minimum three feet. Uh, usually we look at five or 10 feet from the screen, but three feet should be considered bare minimum. You want to light yourself and the screen separately. And the big thing is the screen should be, um, screen should be perfectly even and, you can download Nob Omniscope for free and it will run for 14 days as if it was a full copy. And then after that, it quits every five minutes, which is fine because you can just turn it on, figure out your green screen and let it die. And then if you really use it over and over again, you might want to throw them a bone and, and buy it for, you get three copies for 300 bucks or whatever. Um, but what you want to do is on, 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 the, on, on Omniscope, the first thing you want to do is look at the, you want to look at your luminance and you want that green screen to be at 70% pretty much as close as you can is straight straight across now what you're going to normally see is it's going to come up at the edges a little bit like this and it's going to be like oh a little bit up and down because that's irregular you probably have a screen especially you know most people have screens with wrinkles and other things like that and then it's like all over the place you know like like this that that means that when you eliminate green you have to eliminate all of that green so you're throwing away all that data and that means that your your edge has to be harder because you're throwing all that data away because you want to use all this fine data you want to use just for the edges. And when you have to cut all of it out because the green screen isn't even, then you're making it harder for yourself to, to make that actually work. The second thing is you'll see uh, RGB parade. And so if you have red, green, and blue, you want your green to be minimum of, it'll be kind of like this oftentimes, you want your green to be a minimum of 20 points different than the next highest one, preferably 40, and well, preferably as many as you can, <laughs> as much as you can. But um, And there's ways to do that. One thing we do, which is highly dangerous if you don't have all the tools to do it, is what we call green on green, which is we use green bulbs on a green screen, and it'll make it pure green. And so then your, your red and blue will be almost zero, and your green's really high. You just have to be able to flag it and have it far enough back that it doesn't create incredible spill. Um, on on your foreground, but when you do that, um, when I we used to have to do about ten hours of keying a week, and um, 
when you do that, you, you get really good at making that green screen perfect because every irregularity is another hour of work that you're paying somebody to do. Um, yeah. So anyway, those are some, some real quick tips, but we're, we are going to do a lab in the next month. So, um, just stay tuned for that. I'm just trying to get the schedule and I'm out of production for a little while. And so <laughs> I'll be around a lot. <laughs> so I don't know that'll drive, I'll drive everybody crazy. Like, Hey, let's do this. Let's do this. Um, so I'm, I've got a little time. All right. Uh, next question. From Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C., asking, The new Sony FR7 comes with a 5-pin XLR input for audio. Why would Sony use a 5-pin over the standard 3-pin? My understanding is the 5-pin supports two channels, but that won't require an adapter for most setups. Good, Courtney. Uh, yeah, it will require an adapter for most setups, but uh, I guess they've fallen back uh to you know what they've used to been doing. Uh, their old camcorders used to have five pin connectors on it. It was good for audio guys who are connecting to the camera to feed uh, audio to the camera. It carries two balanced stereo, you know, balanced stereo pair on a single connector. And that camera is all about compactness, small compact PTZ to get it in a small place. So you don't want a plethora of connectors in there taking up all the space in that unit because they're packing a whole lot into that small space. So a single a single uh, XLR connector takes up half the space of two three-pin XLR connectors. And uh, most uh, professional audio uh, companies make break breakaway cables or breakout cables and breakaway cables for connecting uh, the tethering the sound uh, mixer to the camera itself. Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, the the SR uh, the the FR seven. I'm sorry. Um, has a limited amount of space where they can put things, and I, like all my sound devices, it uses a five pin XLR. So it's sort of an industry standard, uh, either that or the uh, the mini XLRs. And what Courtney said. Yeah, yeah. So I think that I think the the five pin. I've had used five pins for years because we use um, uh, we have the the Pix two forties all had that for the input was actually a five pin and you just got used to it, but you did worry a lot about where that five pin cable was because if you misplace it, then you're in trouble. So I would buy two uh, of those for every camera, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, because, or at least one, one extra one for every two cameras or something, but have a bunch of them because it is a super stressful moment when you don't, don't have them. Um, next question. Next question in from Chris Fenwick uh, in Emeryville, California, right here on the panel. Can we talk about the Elgato Wavelink software? It's pretty cool, and coupled with the Stream Deck Plus, it's very powerful. If only somebody knew a little bit about the Wavelink. Oh, Chris, Chris is here. Uh, Chris is I'll, here. Be, I'll admit, I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, I, uh, some friend, I, birthday present, I got the Stream Deck Plus uh, as, as a birthday gift from some of the panelists here. And um, thank you, guys. Uh, it comes with access to the Wavelink software, which you normally only get if you buy the little Elgato Wave microphone, which I, I don't know, it might be the best mic in the world. It's not, uh, but I don't know anything about it. But the Wavelink software is really cool. And the reason it's really pretty interesting is it right from the beginning, it gives you two separate mix outputs, one for what you're listening to and one for what you're streaming. And so coupled with something like, say, um, uh, you know, a loopback, you could create, you know, different feeds. Like I want to send this to here or this to that, but it also, it actually creates its own loopback like feed that you can log on or um, access within say Zoom or Twitch or whatever you're streaming from. But in addition to all that, you can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can come over here and you can say, 
I want to add an application. So like I could like add Safari. And then if I want to take and here, I'm gonna I can move these around, I believe. Um, whoops, move that totally not the direction I wanted to go. I'll put that back over here. Let's say now I want to control this app, Zoom, on my stream deck. So what I do is I come over here and I take an input guy, click that guy, come down here. This is all still in the frame, yeah. And I can say Zoom. And now I have a knob on my stream deck to control the volume for this app. And then this is how much of it I listen to. And this is how much of it I'm streaming. And this is the volume for what I'm listening to. And this is the volume for what I'm streaming. And if I want to tink over and listen to what I'm actually streaming, I just have to click on that. And given all of this uh, uh, power in this very consumer-oriented app, I, I would seriously consider something like this as opposed to, although I love the mic pre on the mix pre, all of the patching and routing and bears on my that I'm doing inside my mix pre and with other software. It just seems like a super powerful app that you can adjust individual application volumes. And that, I guess the thing that is, it, it, to me, it seems more like it might control, it might replace the loopback functionality that we've done in the past where you can just be adding these things to it and doing some fine control over them. And those are tied, those are tied into your stream, into your stream deck too, right? Exactly. And so yeah. like when you, when I click on the stream mix, it says select Wavelink stream as the audio source in your favorite streaming software. So boom, that eliminates loopback. And if I want to... But I could just set my, my mix pre, for instance, as another input, right? Yeah, you have. I could, I could, I believe so. Here, let's just try it. If I hit here and I come down here, well, I can because I have an output called uh, I believe it's called output to zoom. No, there, you can see there's it. my mix. There you yeah. yeah. So, so, it just, uh, th so it could do exactly that. It could be that. And then this becomes the input for uh, zoom, right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it seems super powerful. And the fact that it allows you to build two mixes right from, to me, it's interesting that it does it right from the home screen. It's not like I have right. to turn on an option or dig into a preference or toggle to a thing. It knows from the get go, you want to broadcast something and you want to listen to something. Well, what's interesting though, is that now that the more I think about it, though, I still feel like if I wanted to, because I like having my total control in my mix pre, but I could use this and send it back to the mix pre as an out output using loopback. So I wouldn't get rid of anything. I would just keep making it more complex. But the, the advantage of that would be that all my apps that I want to potentially play into zoom are now all available to me and I have volume control. I can bring them up and down, and I can theoretically have that control on the stream deck, right? So I can you, be sitting there on turning the stream up, deck oh, plus, I wanna, yes, with the knobs, yeah. I, I could even, like, duck a little bit, like, be showing you something, and then scroll it down a little bit and talk, and then turn it back up again. And Absolutely. It's a really interesting, yeah. And it, it looks like it's, I didn't sign in, I don't think, and it just let me... What you have to do, button. so it took me a while to figure this out. So once you download the stream deck... or. Wavelength. Plus, no, Stream Deck software. Once you have the Stream Deck uh -huh. Plus, you go to the downloads page, and you, what you're looking for is um, the Wavelink download. And it says Wavelink 1, Wavelink 3, and Wavelink yeah. XLR. XLR, yeah. So just download the Wavelink software mm -hmm. and launch it. Uh, another little gotcha about it, when you when you launch it, it's like, where'd it go? Where's it go? It's, where's, it's not here. It's not here. It doesn't open a window. All it does is it puts a little icon in your menu bar. 
then you have to go to the menu bar and open it up from there. And the icon looks like... And a, does it not work if you don't have a Stream Deck, or is it... Or does it just work? Uh, it, it looks I like it just. Know. It looks like it just lets you download it and use it. So it's um, interesting. Maybe huh? I don't know. Do you not have a Stream Deck Plus? I do have a Stream Deck Plus, but it's not on right now, and it still let me download it and install it and do all the other things. Yeah, so I don't know. Somebody yeah. without a Stream Deck Plus should should try that. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's cool. It's super cool interesting. It. Yeah, absolutely, Muddy. Yeah, so I think there's three special aspects of this software, the first being that individual application routing, right? So that's super powerful, as we talked about. Um, the second being the two mixes. And of course, there's multiple ways that you can do each of these, but that they're all together in, in, in one is useful. But then the third and the super powerful piece is the fact that coupled with the Stream Deck Plus, you actually have physical hardware knobs for those to adjust those as well. So those three aspects on a Mac, it um, it does some of the things that Loopback will do, but on a PC, it's even more powerful because then you don't have to get into voice meter, banana, and potato, and you know all those. Get so. rid of all those fruits. Exactly. Yep. Mm. And vegetables. Yeah. The uh, I don't like fruits and vegetables. I do actually like vegetables. Anyway, so the um, I have to admit that I'm so I I really like the the Stream Deck Plus and or the yeah the Stream Deck Plus and and uh, I am so tempted. You can fit. A little bit, three of them underneath the ATEM. <laughs> like if you lifted the ATEM up, and it's I'm so close to having this like control bar underneath it of all these buttons and dials that I can just kind of just go across. I don't even know what to do with them yet, but I feel like I have to try it. <laughs> so I'm sitting here just staring at, it, trying to hold. I'm trying to hold onto my wallet, and it's like tugging away, like a little like, hey, we could just do this, and then we have the thing, and then do the thing. I think within a year we'll have an Extreme Deck Plus Plus or Extreme Deck Plus right. Plus extreme or something and it'll have eight knobs or something but i have so what i have right now is i you know i have i got Bo uh inspired me to get this this is like a long monitor and so and this is just short of the width of the of the atem and Wait, uh, and what? the mac does see it <laughs> in case you're wondering <laughs> what kind so, of input does that have hdmi and the mac sees it and goes oh you want it's like 1920 by 720 or something like that it's like a weird or 1920 it's like super long what are you going to use that for I'm going to put scopes on it. So I'm going to put my, I'm going to run my own scope. I'm going to run Omniscope on it and then, and then run it across the top so I can see, I can just look down and see the scopes there. And I'm going to have a couple different, different things for it to switch to. Like, oh, I want to see audio scopes. I want to see video scopes. I want to see whatever. So my plan right now is to put, you know, if you think about it from the side is to put, here's the ATEM and then put a, put the um, stream deck under, underneath it and then this monitor up above it like that. So there's like this little control system that sits in front of me and I'll keep on playing with what that looks like. Do you need me to build you a eighties era wooden with yeah. a little <laughs> wrist great. brace yeah. on it? Yes, please. I'm going to, let me, I'll, I'm, I'm building a 3d model of the ATEM. We'll be doing this next week. I'll be probably doing it in after hours. You'll see me playing with the scan of it. Um, is building the, the, a 3d model of the mini extreme because it doesn't seem to exist or no one's made it available on the web. So I'm going to 3D model that first. So then I have a, a, a one to work with. I'm going to probably build models of of this and, and of this so I can place them. And then I'm, I'm going to figure out between them all where to, what to print to just do a 3D print of something that will hold them all. Um, and then then I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to inspire Chris with my, with my horrible prints. It'll drive him so crazy. He'll be like, I have to build this in wood. <laughs> so it'll be great and i'll come up and help <laughs> so, so anyway uh, if, if you'll let me we'll make I'll it we'll make it out fingers. of purple heart 
It'll be beautiful. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know what Purple Heart is? I don't know, but I know it will be great. Look look up Purple Heart. It's it's really beautiful wood. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. That'll be something. That'll be a little uh, Christmas project that we'll all be working on. So anyway, and we'll stream it, of course, into After Hours. Uh, Next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia, asking, are there panelists who are using the updated video pencil, the virtual Mac camera and iPad? It is on my list of things to test. <laughs> so I've been deep, deep, deep in production. In fact, I'm leaving a little early today to do my last production of the year. Um, but it's been, they were supposed to be simple projects and they did not turn out that way. So I'm going to be, I've been busy for the last couple of weeks, but um, starting next week, you'll probably see me playing with that. And I'm, it's on the, near the top, near the top of what I got to do is play with video pencil because it looks really exciting. Tony? So I have tons and tons of questions. I am able to use it, but I'm not sure that I'm using it in the way in which Michael intended. So what I can do is I can briefly go to my iPad, and this is me on the iPad. I can draw a line, say test. Well, it draw a line and said test. So I don't know if you guys can see it but it's it's showing on my end. And what I thought I was able to do, and I don't want to do it here in terms of testing, but I really wanted to use the actual camera. I wanted to use this camera to see if I could draw on the iPad and it would show up on this camera. But I'm not sure. So yeah, that's that, the part that I want to test with, uh, that I need to test with, because um, Michael's added a couple features to it. So I want to take a look at it because um, he's got a new camera feature that you can feed video into, and then it'll send it to the app, and then you can draw on it. What I need to see is, in a perfect world, I'd be able to send out a just a black and white image or a a, a color over black, whatever back to the ATEM so that I could key it key it back in, but I would be able to see what I'm drawing on at the same time. And I'm not sure if that works yet, but we're going to find out. And then if it doesn't work, then we'll make lots of requests to Michael. The the video pencil is showing on my Mac. That was one of the new features that was Mm -hmm. added. So it is showing on the Mac, but I don't know if I need to select because I'm using shoot as my primary camera on the tennis um, iPhone. If I needed to select that, or do I need to select black magic? We'll we'll do a video. I I think we'll be able to, um, uh, in the next two weeks, we'll do a video pencil lab. We'll just get a bunch of people that have it, and we'll uh, jump into after hours and and play with it for an hour. <laughs> so so we'll uh, so stay tuned for that. We have a little, you know, again, I I have a little more time than I've had in the past, and so we'll be uh, playing with more labs as we go into the next couple of weeks, next two or three weeks. So stay tuned. It's a good time because a lot of us have less on our plate for the for the crisp for Christmas. So we'll fill we'll fill your plate up with <laughs> with with uh, labs. <laughs> All right. Um, next question. Paul Przykowski from Gainesville, Florida, asking pros and cons of upgrade from A10 Mini Pro ISO to either Extreme ISO SDI Plus bi-directional converters or the Extreme ISO HDMI version. Current setup has a mix of HDMI and SDI with two Blackmagic Cinema Camera 4K cams, Ursa Broadcast plus DeckLink Duo for I.O. Go ahead, buddy. I see two distinct questions in this. So one is upgrading from the Pro to the extreme, right? So going from the four input switcher to an eight input switcher, and then also the question about HDMI versus SDI. So I wanna split those two separately. So the pros and cons of 
the pros of moving from the pro to the extreme, um, not only do you get eight inputs, which sounds like that may or may not uh, benefit you, you get two outputs, which can be useful to have a separate kind of multi-view and program out from HDMI. So that can be useful. But then the, the major benefit is you get SuperSource. SuperSource is built into the extreme units. It's not in the pro unit. So that's, and you get a headphone and jack think, as well. So I think that he's, he's upgrading to either, yeah, he's going to go to either the, either an extreme. So he'll have the SuperSources, but the question is, is should he go to the SDI or should he go to the HDMI? Right. And so, but the, the other one, oh yeah, okay. It does say so extreme. He's, he's so, going to extreme to both of them. It's just a matter of wh whether he wants to go to SDI or HDMI. Gotcha. So wanted to clarify that. And on the SDI, of course, the locking connectors are one of the pros and you can uh, take longer runs with SDI. It's a pro level converter and or pro level cable. And it, it just works when you plug it in. Um, whereas HDMI can be a little finicky. Um, I don't have a lot of insight around converters cause it sounds like you're going to have some converters in the system either way. Yeah. Um, yeah, the um, uh, I have both of those. I have the SDI and the um, HDMI. The advantage of the SDI is also that you get two extra outputs. So you have four outputs instead of two. That is really cool. <laughs> like it, it just really makes a difference to have four outputs. So you get the four extra outputs. The other thing that you, if you decide you want to go into routing right now, HDMI routing is really painful. You know, it's there's not there's not a lot of good ways to do it. I have a Blackmagic. I have this eight by eight that I've filled up you know, with things that I want to do. And, and it's just, it's a little bit painful to make the routing. It's a little bit painful. You have all these handshakes and all kinds of other stuff. Whereas you can go out and get a 20 by 20 Blackmagic router and then it, it's got a API and you can run it and you can do all kinds of other things and you can just have tons of routing. So the routing, it makes it easier with SDI. So it, it, it I'm on the fence too of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I was happy during COVID to have HDMI, but I'm kind of feeling like I want to go back to SDI um, just because of those extra outputs, the ability to route things more effectively. Um, and and I'm less sensitive to it because for, for years I was only SDI. We, the way we got to every monitor was running through some little converter that was, you know, um, Velcroed to the back of the monitor. <laughs> so like that's how we got to monitors. So I'm not, I'm not as sensitive to um, that problem. And those converters aren't aren't super expensive. Um, I would, so I'm, I'm still on the fence. It's, it, it does feel like more of a, of a, of a, something you paid for when you get it. And then the other question for you to think about as you're in this process is whether you want to go to a 2ME. So the 2ME is, is going to be, it has more inputs and more outputs. I think it's 20 in, 12 out. So you're going to get more IO. You barely need a router at that point. Um, but the main thing that, that happens there as you don't have an interface. So you have to decide, I'm going to use a stream deck or I'm going to use software or I'm going to use something else to run it because you won't have a hardware interface to, 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 um, to change those things. So another thing to keep in mind. Go ahead, Josh. And Alex, um, I think we asked about it in After Hours before, but those extra two outputs on the SDI, does the drop-down menu just give you two I extra all, ways? I, if, I, if I remember correctly, them? all four of them are just all. Like, you know, you can do anything you want with any of any of those four outputs. So they're just, you go into the menu above and you have, you know, anything you want to send out. You want to send a mat, you want to send the super source, you want to send uh, the, the clean, you know, all of those are just all, and which is how all the other constellations work. You know, it's just that all the outputs are outputs. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So you're right. When you have the SDI version, you get four outputs. They're individual. You just go up the output menu and you can send them where you want to. Uh, the one thing that, he might want to look out for if you go up to the 2ME you're going to lose your ISO recording so you'll oh, right. you'd have yep. to have we some device to record all those ISOs 
yeah, if you if you need to do that. And the SDI one also works better if you are the SDI extreme is also going to work better if you want to do um, zoom ISO work because you'd be able to get a, a higher density out of it and into it. So you can have you can get one quad card and send all eight eight outputs from the ISO into. That's why I got the other one was to do that specifically. Um, which I'll be doing more labs on, like everything else over the over the next couple of weeks. Uh, now that I've got a little more time to sit down with it, and we're going to kind of play with how do we build a little show in an ATEM with a minimum amount of things. Um, yeah. Next question, Tommy Shans from St. Paul, Minnesota, asking: Has anyone checked out the new Teams Post-it app? The voting bid intrigued me. I haven't played with it. Um, this um, there's a couple different Post-it apps that are available, and I think that um, Zoom is also creating one um, that is. I think we saw that in Zoomtopia. So some of that stuff is already, you know, Zoom is already kind of working on. So the idea of oh, we can have a meeting, put up a bunch of Post-its. I can't think of the name of the, the app that I've used in the past. Uh, Miro, Miro is the app that I've used in the past for this, and I found Miro to be really great. <laughs> like I, I didn't, I wasn't the owner of the of the project, but they the folks that brought me in were the owners of that. And they, and it was just the ability for us to get our thoughts down and, you know, have painfully long meetings about software development, <laughs> you know, of what the feature sets are going to be, uh, was pretty, was pretty effective. Um, next question. Bobby Rafferty in central Florida. Anyone have examples of USDZ animated interactive scenes with Apple's AR kit? I don't, you know, it's something that's, again, it's one of those things on the list of, well, we should create some interactive things to figure this out. Um, but I think that, you know, we're going to have a lot of opportunities. I would recommend, and again, we'll try to focus more on some USDZ and AR kit type solutions as we go into the spring, because I think that next year is going to be a big AR, AR year. So um, so we'll try to get ourselves ahead of it. Um, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, DJI Mini 3, not Pro, can supposedly fly for more than 15 minutes with 4K 30 and vertical shooting. Does this mean the easiest way to shoot Instagram and TikTok is now a drone? I would say with the, even without the vertical, it would, it would not be that hard to shoot with that because the, the, the main thing is, is if you're shooting 4K, those I don't believe that Instagram or TikTok goes over 4K as far as the distribution. So you can always just pan and scan inside of the 4k and so you you know if you're shooting 4k why don't i would not recommend shooting all the footage that you worked on really hard um in 9 by 16 <laughs> like i would you know i would i would shoot it at 6k or 4k or 8k whatever you want to shoot it at and then crop it uh, you can you can crop it out but i think that it it it, it is um you know shooting in 9 by 16 is pretty limiting because people can't watch it on a TV or their laptop or a computer. Um, and a lot of times what I've done is is I'll shoot a 16 by 9 show and then I'll recut it as a 9 by 16. And um, you can actually, it gives you a lot of latitude. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Next question. James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota asking, I see all three, oh, all these 3D printed stands for Stream Deck's and think wood would be better. Any tips on creating custom wood stands? Mitchell? I'd like to add, uh, in addition to wood, steampunk. I would think that would be a cool category. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you just get wood filament for your 3D printer. Uh, I've done that, and you stain it just like wood. It looks kind of like wood. <laughs> and you can make it any shape you want. You don't require any, you know, you don't scar up your fingers cutting stuff on the, mm. on the lake. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Chris. That that is the worst idea I've ever heard come out of you, Courtney. That just that's evil. That's wrong. 
<laughs> no, I was just I was just gonna say is especially with the price of wood these days, measure two or three or four times and cut once. That's what yeah, I, that's my yeah. advice. Yeah. Um. Go ahead, Muddy. Can't hear you, Muddy. Can't hear you, Muddy. Muddy, I don't know if you can hear us. We can't hear you. Oh, there we go. Unmuting yep. in Zoom will help too. So, um, yeah, the two things that come to mind are, are one, are having accurate dimensions that you can do some of the modeling before you start working in wood. So that is one tip that comes to mind. The other tip that comes to mind I've seen on some of these stands it's actually embedded magnets because the, the, the stream decks themselves, some of them, the Models 2 and the XL, have magnets that they magnetize to the stands. And so I've seen some on Etsy where they have magnets embedded um, in the print or in the wood case so that it actually is kind of a quick release mm -hmm. version. So, uh, And that actually helps eliminate some of the tight tolerances you would need to have that fit in there really, really well if you can have those um, magnetized together. Uh, next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris has a warning for his uh, link that he has displayed, and he says, shooting rigs are always fascinating. What do you think about this uh, FPV POV rig recently featured on No Film School? Good, Courtney. Um, I looked at it. It's um, I won't play it for you, but it looks kind of like that. It's a body cam mounted uh, uh, device. Uh, maybe I can play it. Uh, you know, I don't know if they will get uh, but it, it, it flips around forward and backwards, uh, to make you sick, uh, if you're viewing the output of the camera there. And I don't know whether he's using, uh, if he's just grabbing it. Oh, I see. He's got it attached to the bottom of the gun. That's so pretty that's, cool. that's what's controlling, uh, the forward and backward and body mounts like that have been used for, for years. We used them a lot of times with an Aeroflex mounted on it, where you mount, mount a, a harness onto the actor and you mount an Aeroflex out in front, looking back to get a POV of their face while they're running or something. And it's very disorienting because they they stay perfectly still in the frame and the background is going up and down like crazy. So it, it's, it's a, it's a POV you don't normally see Peter in real Gabriel. life. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's a, it's oftentimes used in scenes to kind of, um, uh, yeah, to, to disorient, uh, to disorient the, the viewer. I mean, it's very specific effect to make you feel uncomfortable. This is a really cool rig. It makes me want to build one, but I'm not going to, I don't think maybe, maybe we'll see. Um, anyway, so we'll, um, but, uh, it's a pretty cool rig. Um, next question. David Brady in New York, New York has a question. What is the preferred vMix equivalent that runs on Apple Silicon? Go ahead, Mark. ATEM software control. Oh, well, but you need, it needs to be a piece of software. I will admit that I, I do believe that Blackmagic should build the ATEM soft, that all Blackmagic needs to do to cause an enormous amount of damage in the market is to just cr move their hardware to a software that's like 50 bucks, like 50 bucks for the software. And I know that they'll say, well, we're a software, we're a hardware company, but they sell to resolve and they sell other things and they can even have something that's only 1080p, you know, whatever they want to do. But I think that that moving it to software means that we can have the ATEM interface with software that ran it. And I think that you might end up with a lot of people using that, um, especially if, it, if they made it brutally inexpensive. It would probably cut the knees out of a lot of things um, to do it. What I would say right now um, is that, uh, um, that that Memo Live is probably the closest to vMix is probably my, in, as far as a feature set goes. That's a lot different interface, but it's probably the closest. Uh, Ecamm Live and Memo Live are probably the two that you'd want to compare um, uh, right now. 
um, and, and see which one may, might work for you. Uh, next, there, there's Wirecast as well. It's just got a lot of deep scars. <laughs> I've heard it got better, but a lot of deep scars on that one. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, the marketing for the ABBA Voyage virtual concert boasts that one billion computed hours at ILM were used to render the avatars of the band members. How is that figure determined and what constitutes a computing hour? You know, I don't know what it, what it currently constitutes. I used to work at ILM, and ILM's been tracking um, CPU hours for a long time. One of the things that ILM found very early on, and it really made a big difference for how ILM works, was that you know we need to charge for these things. It needs to be a it needs to be a revenue source, or we won't invest in them. So it's really hard to build a rendering farm if you're not invest if you're not, if if it's just seen as a cost. Like oh, it's a cost, but it's it's hard to quantify that cost when you're not charging for it. So they built a very complex system to manage and they had a, you know, what is a base CPU hour? I don't know what it was, but I don't know what it was back then. It was, but it was literally a number of gigaflops or megaflops or whatever. But this is what they defined it as a unit. And then they charged for it. It was like, I I don't know, it was like a dollar or $2, $3 a CPU hour, something in that range, like somewhere between one and $3 a CPU hour. And they would charge more if it was a more powerful CPU that had more power, you know, like, et cetera, that it, it was whatever it was a, a based against that unit. And the big the big thing is, is that it allowed ILM, I mean, it made a lot of money it, it, or it cost a lot of money for them. That's why that's part of why they got the the nickname I love money. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, was, was one of the nicknames for ILM. It's kind of like when you think of whole, when they say they call Whole Foods, Whole Paycheck, you know, and um, anyway, so. Uh, so the ILM, you know, but we had one shot that was, I think it was, um, three quarters of a million dollars to render. Like it wasn't even, it was a Star Wars shot and, and, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was this, it was the robots coming out of the, the thing opens up, those big things open up in the field and the robots go, and they go, you know, anyway, I can make the sound effect there for you. Anyway, so the, um, that was a very expensive because it was just so much geometry and, and everything else. But I think it was like a three quarters of a million. I probably shouldn't have said that on YouTube. But anyway, so the, um, uh, anyway, it was a very expensive shot. And there was a lot of upset around it. Um, the, um, but that CPU charge is a, um, uh, is really powerful. And what was interesting was, is that it, it, it allowed ILM when they wanted to change out, they, when they had enough money in the hopper based on all these CPU hours, they just changed out the whole, the whole, when they updated, they just changed all of the CPUs because back then you would get different grain uh, in different errata, different randomization if you use different chips. So they had to take 2000 processors out and put 2000 processors in, um, you know, to, to update the entire system when it was at Letterman. And, and there was a point where they said, there were people calling around going, Hey, do you want some CPUs? And you're like, what, what is, how much do they cost? And they're like the gas, like, just come get them. We just got to get, got to get these things out of here. And so, um, so anyway, it's, it's, uh, so it's, it, it was a, key thing um, to put into the system to make it work. We're going to go a little over because we've just got a couple more questions and not a ton of convention planning questions. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, billions, a lot of hours. And I think they're calculating that based on cores, not necessarily CPU units. Uh, and remember, like, a, you know, a 3090 uh, NVIDIA has uh, 10,496 CUDA cores in it. So that's 10,000 cores in one video card that's used to calculate that stuff. So I think that's what they're using to fudge those numbers. I will, I will say that I'm, I'm really looking forward to when ABBA comes to the United States. I, I, but from, given what other people have talked about, Nigel and other people have said about the ABBA experience, it sounds pretty slick. Like it, it actually worked pretty well. And, and a lot of it has to do with integrating the lighting and the effects and everything else with what is essentially just video screens. So it'd be really interesting to see. Next question. 
From David Brady in New York, New York, I dug up a Sennheiser MKH416T trying to use my XTU USB interface and provide phantom power, but get no signal. Does this particular mic need a little extra juice or just a better interface? Code Courtney. No, it needs less juice. Uh, the T-series of Sennheisers use 12-volt T-powering. It is not phantom power. Um, there is, a, you need and an adapter. Will 48 volts kill it? Uh, it could. Uh, usually it 48, 48 volts is uh, is current limited, so hopefully it won't provide enough current to kill it. But mm. uh, there are adapters. Uh, PSC makes one uh, that's about uh, 41 bucks that you can get it at um, uh, B&H, I suppose. Uh, the A4812, 12 volt to uh, 48 volt to 12 volt T power inline connector. And I found a guy in Russia that makes the circuit boards that will do that. And I built my own into this little connector here. It's even smaller than the PSC, uh, but I wouldn't advise it because the circuit board is about the size of my little fingernail, you know, and you have to solder to two, two or three wires in and two or three wires out. So not good. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. David Brady is rapidly moving into Paul Wallace, uh, uh, territory with his collection of microphones. Uh, Dave, make sure on the X2U that the monitor knob is in the right place. Um, what you're listening to, it, it it could be, it's it's a funky interface. Just make sure you play with all the knobs. But do be very careful. Uh, I've, I've had mics that I had the voltage not match. And they get really hot for just a second. <laughs> and then after that, they don't they, they don't get nearly and as then loud. Then we call them lights. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Next question. Next question from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Mass. Uh, any suggestions for reasonably priced wireless adapters for guitar, mostly home use? Uh, I don't know. You might have. I don't know. We have a lot of guitar players here today. Um, there are a lot of options and I'm, I'm hesitant to, um, you know, my, my leaning towards would be a line six line six makes one that usually line six makes pretty good hardware, but I don't, I don't know for sure. Go ahead, Mitchell, real quick. What about a GoPro two? No, (laughs) I wouldn't do that. You you need, you need it to be, um, uh, it has different impedance. Uh, next question. Next question from Chris Widener in Lafayette. Uh, Google is shutting down duplex on the web, so no more movie tickets online via that service. Will anyone actually notice? There was movie tickets? There was anything? Like, I, I never used duplex. I mean, all I saw it on was the Google I.O. Um, announcements. <laughs> so so I guess that's a good reason that they're shutting it down. Again, I think, you know, we can go back to, I think Google has a huge uh, rely, uh, trust problem with developers is that it used to be that, you know, Google had to do a lot of work to get people to persuade people that it's going to stay around. And now they, it's almost impossible for people to believe that things are going to stick around with, with Google because they cancel so many things that you can't get developers to develop for it because they're just like, well, that'll be just another, uh, that'll be more roadkill. Go ahead, um, Courtney. Was Duplex that uh, AI assistant that would call yeah. and make reservations for you at the restaurant it, or for your haircut? It made sense or on paper. For, I mean, it, it, it looked cool, but it sounded great. And the demos that they gave, you could not tell the difference. And, I think and it could handle all of the different situations of the people on the other, the live people that it's interacting with uh, quite well. And the, but uh, I don't think they got enough people to brave enough to try it. The thing that they did first before I heard anybody else do it, that it took me a second to realize that they had done it, was they put breaths in. So it actually took breaths at the right moment and you could hear them in the mic. And I was like, whoa, that is like, 
that's, that's, you know, next level. Go ahead, Muddy. I remember that uh, using this a number of times when it first came out. Again, I kind of forgot that it was even there. I haven't used it in a long time. However, what I have noticed is on an Android phone, they have built a lot of that functionality into the standard phone app as well. So when you just make a phone call, it starts to narrate that and, and show that on text and give you kind of pop-up buttons for answers you might respond to. So I think they've taken some of the core technology and built it into other apps. But but I agree, I'm a little gun shy about you know Google Apps now because who knows how long they'll last. Yeah, by the way, um, for the last question, which I, I just didn't, I didn't, wasn't scrolled in the right place in the event chat, Mickey said that the Sennheiser EW um, 100 G4 CI1 <laughs> is a good one for that. Uh, next question. Last for the hour from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, California. Can Alex please tell us the model of that cool wide monitor, please? Oh, um, someone put it into the event chat, which I, I can't find now. Um, but this is a uh, uh, it is a VS display, and it's the VS one two three Z J zero one A, and you can find more about it at vslcd.com. But I of course got it at Amazon. And is it a touch? Is it a touch screen? Nope, nope, it's not, not. touchscreen. I didn't need it to be touchscreen. I don't really like touching screens that much, and so. Um, and it was a lot less. It was like a hundred and some dollars. It wasn't a particularly expensive monitor. There it is. Yeah, Chris Fenwick has it up on on uh, there on um, Amazon. So that's what I bought, and I tested it, and it does actually. Um, uh, it is it just shows up as HDMI. At first, I didn't think it worked, but I realized I was trying to put three monitors into a Mac Mini. But once I did, once I popped that out, there's a little bit of trying to figure out the resolution, but it will d- definitely do. It's like nineteen twenty by nine hundred or something weird. But um, seven twenty. By 720, 1920 by 720, which you don't think will work, but it does. <laughs> you know, it, it, it works. And it's a, it's a really fascinating uh, monitor. I'm going to use it. For, I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I'm going to, I like the idea that it was nearly, I wish it was just a little longer because then it would match the ATEM. But, uh, but I'm going to build this little control thing on my desk. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, go ahead, Muddy. Yeah, so it turns out the link I put in the uh, chat is this exact one, and some folks were asking about the I.O. on it, so it looks like it has you know, HDMI input as well as VGA for those that are still using that. So Yeah, yeah. so, so anyway, and it, it does appear to be some kind of legal, um, legal video, so we'll, we'll uh, continue to play with that and see how it works. All right, we are jumping into our second hour. A little bit late, but uh, but uh, but here nonetheless. And uh, we're I think the idea here is that we we're going to talk a little bit about what conventions uh, we. Um, and you can kind of use it as suggestions. You can probably just put in as questions um, to if you have suggestions of what we're looking at. You know, I think that um, one of the things we did find is that we're probably until we grow a little bit more, um, putting lots of conventions next to each other was a little bit difficult. So um, so I think that we're going to try to figure out. We have to kind of be picky and choosy about where what we cover probably next year to make sure that we can cover them well. Um, you know, I think the ones off the top of my head until other people raise their hand or other people ask questions. Um, obviously, I mean, there. I think that we have a handful of people that might be at CES that could possibly do some coverage uh, or at least a couple streams out of it. Um, I think it'll be a little too early for, for me to go, but, um, but it, I think that it would be, um, but it'd be interesting to see some things there. I, I, I think that experiential coverage would be great just seeing what it's like and kind of wandering around a little bit um i think that the the you know yeah i I, you know i'll list off a couple for us to think about but i think that um nab is a good one um the i I know there's an accessibility one in march 
um, that that I'm kind of interested in there. Um, there is a uh, there's NAB, and then we have of course Cinegear. Um, the I don't know if we need if we do NAB whether we really need to cover Infocom to be honest. Um, Nam and Cinegear I don't know if they're as close together as they were before, but those are those were both pretty interesting. Um, if we do more of them, I think one of the things we have to think about is uh, really reducing the amount of overhead that we use for them. You know, I, I think that we have to decide which ones are going to, I think we want to think about tiers, you know, tiers of, of this one, we're going to do a ton of video and we're going to do a ton of pre-production. We're going to do a ton of this other stuff and other ones that we're going to go and we're going to see how it goes because, um, you know, there's been a lot of work. And I think the problem is, is we're not getting as much output because we're putting so much work into each show. And I think that we need to think about how we can be a little bit more responsive and just kind of go and cover things. Because I, I think that we, um, uh, you know, I used to cover a lot of these with, with a lot less planning. <laughs> so, so, so we want to think about what, what we can, um, what we can do so that we can output more because the, I think they're really important for our, our audience and for our members. Um, I think that the, the main thing that we, um, want to figure out is there's some maybe two or three a year that we put the kind of work in the, that we put into the into the ones last year so we have like two or you know i think that those can't happen more than every four months in my opinion <laughs> like you know like it's just there's so much work to be done and then we can cover other ones but i think we need to to, to scale back the amount of work that we do on each one of them just because we don't have enough people and you know everybody's got a day job so um yeah go ahead mitchell I was thinking that maybe we have two tiers of our two types of coverages. One would be the tank coverage, and then the other one might be the backpack uh, type where we send I, I somebody think it, out. I think it'd even be a third coverage of more iPhones and you know some things that are a little bit more that are lighter that we're just going to cover, and that can be lots of different kinds of events. I mean, it could be. Um, you know, cause there's lots of events going out and it'd be really fun to get it. I, it's fun to watch David Brady jump into after hours with a phone showing us the, you know, a parade, you know, those are experiences we can, and there's probably somewhere that's a little bit more, more, uh, re refined than just a handheld camera, um, phone. But, but I think that we can find different ways to cover these. And I think that that is important. I think that, you know, like NAB, IBC, you know, those are two big ones, and maybe those are the those are the big ones um, we can potentially maybe add. The problem is NAB then becomes very close to NAM and and uh, Cinegear, um, but I would I would tend to go a little lighter on NAM and Cinegear, and NAB and IBC might be the big ones that we cover, and then the, all the other ones are kind of a a tier down, not necessarily the phone down, but like again the live view, the you know like more of a wandering around kind of experience than than a, you know, heavier experience. I think one big question we have to ask also is what we cover. You know, I think that, um, and how much we cover. You know, I think that the um, the challenge really when we build up a ton of gear is that we don't cover very much of the event. You know, part of the advantage of a, of a conference is that there are so many things to see. And a lot of times we see not as many of them because we're putting so much effort into each one of them. And I think that we want to think about, do, do we want to, make it a little lighter and then go, you know, see more of the, of the actual conferences. Um, and, and that's something for us to think about. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. So I just wanted to go over the dates real quick. Those uh -huh. on the panel probably know it, but people listening might not. So the, the CES is January 5th to 8th in Las Vegas. NAB is uh, April 15th to 19th in Vegas and Cinegear is in LA June 1st to 4th. And then when's NAM? Don't know. I or NAM. NAM. Uh, it's N-A-M-M. -M. Um, so that I think that that one was right next to Cinegear. That was a week apart from Cinegear on the last one. Um, 
the uh, April thirteenth to fifteenth. Uh, oh, Nam is April thirteenth yeah. to fifteenth. Is yeah. that in Vegas or L.A.? Don't know. Reading it now. Was in L.A. last year. Nam has always been in Anaheim. I, I I know that. It's just that doing an event at two days before NAB really feels like suicide. Like it's you know like I don't know why they would. I don't know why Nam would put theirs. The show. We would, I'm sorry. The show moved in 2022 to June. Uh, 2023 Nam show is now scheduled for 13th to 15th. Of what? Of April. Sorry. Oh, that's suicide. Like that. I don't. I don't understand why they would do that. All right. So we won't be covering Nam because I can't do both, and I have to pick one, and that's what everyone's going to do. <laughs> like, like you know, like I don't know why they would do that. Um, so. Uh, uh, anyway, so 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 the, now that that simplifies our choices. So um, I mean, you guys can figure out if you if you if someone wants to cover Nam, it's fine. It's just that it would have to be very light because NAB is important, you know, to cover. Um, and uh, I don't know, I I don't understand how Nam would put their conference right up against it. It just seems like a seems like they drank some Kukaluka juice. Anyway, so um, uh, <laughs> that's a technical term for it. Um, anyway, so, so if we look at major events, NAB, potentially Cinegear being slightly lighter, IBC, SIGGRAPH, um, uh, could be another one there. Do, do people, I, I'm curious if people have other ones that they really want to cover. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think another criteria for picking what shows we do uh, should be based on the size of the shows and the separation because we have to be sensitive to our available manpower yeah. to accomplish this. And and I will say that if you if someone here is passionate about something that's relatively technical and geeky and they want to cover it um, and they can build up a team of five people to cover it, we'll give you time. Like, you know, we'll give you time and promotion to do it. You know, like it's, you know, you have to talk to us about it. I mean, I'm not going to, I might not cover a gardening show. Maybe if it's geeky, if it's like electronic gardening, we can talk about it. But, but I... I think that covering shows is a great way to learn how to do field field production. So I think that it's, even if it's a handful of people and we do it, maybe some of them are in after hours and maybe some of them we have a, a day where we spend a couple hours doing it. I think it's great to do this coverage. It's just that for when we build up these like 30 or 40 people working on it and 10 people on the ground, that's going to be like two or three times a year. But I covered many events with just, you know, three or four people. We just wander around with a live view. You know, and do our thing. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, Without getting too religious-y, in the Gospel of Luke, it says that a prophet is never uh, accepted in his hometown. Maybe a good way to hone our craft is to deal with shows that are not super tech-centric. Where we, you know, so like, like for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, we went to a Mandarin festival up in Sacramento. Right. I'm not. I'm not saying people need to cover a Mandarin festival, but but it's not a bad way to hone our craft and get yep. better at doing what we do with less spotlight on. Yep. No, I think I think that, that um, I, the uh, um yeah, I think that that is a good idea, and and I love covering other things and showing other things specifically for what you're saying is that you focus more on the technique. And you focus more on the process than you than you do on the content, and I think that that could be that could be a lot of fun. Or that'd be kind of an after hours thing, <laughs> probably not a main thing, but I think creating some after hours fe- festivals could make sense. Good, Courtney. 
Yeah, Prado would know, but isn't the biggest show in Vegas the concrete and asphalt show? I'm super like concrete world. I, concrete I, world. I I really want to cover concrete world. I don't know why, but it seems like it'd be a lot of fun. And concrete, concrete world wants to cover you. Yes. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially in Vegas with the mafia. You need to leave like okay, concrete. We're here for you. <laughs> so that way, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I think that I think that those are some of the ones that we're kind of kicking around. Go ahead and throw in some other other suggestions or ideas uh, as questions. Uh, I know Mickey said that there's um, there is some overlap between the audiences in NAM and NAB, but they are mostly different markets, kind of, except for the fact that a lot of those vendors all show up at both of those. Like I know that I can imagine that vendors that have to show up at both of these are pretty miffed about the fact that both of these are right next to each other. It's a it's a puts and then press you know that has to cover these things. It just won't be. Uh, and Nam will lose to the you know the press demand. You know they're not gonna they're not gonna um, you know so it'll be interesting to see. And Chris Widener says that concrete sounds like a solid idea. Um, yeah, go ahead, um, Mitchell. Well, I, I think the other thing is that you have to consider the people that would be attending um, have to travel from the East Coast to uh, to Vegas to catch NAB, and then they go home, and then they go back out to uh, Anaheim well, to catch they're, NAM. They're right next so. to each other, so you'd go to Anaheim and then go to NAB theoretically. But if I was going to put them right up, at, if I was gonna, if I was NAM, I would have just tried to get it right next to NAB. You know, like in Vegas. Oh, does the monorail go right to Anaheim from there? No, no, it does not. It's a long way. Uh, um, next question. Next question coming in from Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Are we restricted to video-related conventions? What about video adjacencies like e-gaming or other gaming or sports? Yeah, I think it'd be great. Um, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, it's kind of what I was alluding yeah. to before. Uh, yeah. And I'll say uh, uh, Keenan Campbell and I went to SEMA this year, and I'd never been to SEMA before. That was a fun show. It was yeah. huge. Every yeah, hall, think- every corner, totally full. And I think that the other thing that we could do is really experiment with our gear, experiment with the type of coverage we do, experiment with all of those things. So I think that that finding those would be. Michael asked about Oshkosh. I think Oshkosh would be great. I don't know if we could do it as a, at the size of Oshkosh's big plane show. Um, I don't think we can do it at the size of NAB or IBC. But um, if there's three or four people that want to cover Oshkosh, hundred percent, we'd love to love to see airplanes. Yeah, so I actually want to do um, over the next month. I'm hoping to go to uh, Tucson. I'll tell people when I'm going. So if anyone else wants to go, but I'm going to go to Tucson and I'm going to I'm trying to get the okay to take a live view down there, and we'll we'll wander through the Pima Air Museum, which is right right um, which is pretty cool. Good, Courtney. Yeah, that would be cool. The uh, I thought E3 was dead, but I just looked, and it's uh, it's coming back to life. It's not quite dead. They've announced that they will return in 2023, which is the uh, entertainment gaming world. Yeah, and there was you know. some, there were some announcements in the gaming uh, awards last night that, that there's a lot of releases that look like they're aimed at the E3 dates, <laughs> so the early June. So uh, yeah, I, I think that we might see some more stuff there. Right, next question, Dave Trotman in Edmonton, Canada. California, yeah, Canada, uh, wants to know about Seagraph. I think Seagraph would be great. And I've covered Seagraph, again, by myself, or not by myself, but like two or three other people just wandering around with a live view, and it's worked out really well. So um, so we'll we'll um, play with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Accessibility nuked South by Southwest, but I still have a great conference room reserved for a non-office hours event at South by Southwest with an adjoining, adjoining pool 
barbecue, and rooftop deck for anyone coming to town. Not an OH official anything. Well, if people want to go down, that's great. <laughs> so uh, Austin is a pretty crazy place um, around South by Southwest. I've done a lot of productions in South by Southwest. And so um, it's, uh, it's I, I, unless I really have a good reason to go, I, I tend not to because it's just too, it's too hard to find hotels and, and uh, get anything done. <laughs> so, so that's that's why I, I tend to be a little less uh, a little less excited about it. Go ahead, Mitchell. If uh, Paul takes everybody to breakfast at one in a million, uh, I'm in. That's a neat place to go eat. Yeah, it's a great conference if you can get it. At all, if you have if you if you can get it, get set up the way you need to, but it's a pretty hard hard conference, hard place to work. Um, so, I, as a production person, I always kind of brace for impact. <laughs> you know, just everything from getting around to parking to to getting stuff in and out, to making it all work is just a, is just a heavy, heavy lift. Um, next question. From Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Uh, product launches can be done directly on office hours. What might be the smallest conference we would consider? Or might we do a subset of a larger show like the media tech displayed at an educational trade show? I would love to do, I mean, educational ones are also e-learning and educational conferences are something I'd be definitely interested in. I just don't know when they are. Um, I used to speak at one, I think e-learning, the e-learning conference or whatever. And so um, there, <laughs> what's funny is, is I didn't, I stopped speaking at it because um, I, uh, I kept on saying I wanted to come in over Zoom and they wouldn't, or they wouldn't let me, or over Skype at the time. And they, they wouldn't let me. And I had to keep on showing up and I was like, okay, this is enough. <laughs> that was actually the end of my speaking was when I was just tired of, of actually showing up just to speak for an hour. Um, and so, uh, but I'd love to, I'd love to do that. Um, we may or may not think about doing our own conferences too next year. We'll see. I mean, you know, the I think that when we think about digital first, um, I think it'll be hard to get people to do digital first until we design them, you know, and and uh, and just do something that is a digital first event and um, and not not a totally digital event, um, but a digital first event where people can come and do and and see things, but and get together. But there's also just but it's really designed. All the speakers are on a screen. You know, and that's, and I think that we need to kind of um, pioneer that, I think, to make that work. Uh, next question. From Mike Muddy Schlegel here in the panel and in Raleigh, North Carolina. Is a watch party second ear experience a useful way to cover events that we don't have boots on the ground? What would make a second ear a great experience? You know, I think that, I think that the, um, the thing with the second ears, I think it's really good for keynotes, you know, keynotes and people talking because it gives us something to do. I, I admit that the keynote doesn't move too fast. What we have found with the second ear is we get pretty rough. If you get slow, it's really like the Apple ones go well because there's a lot to say, <laughs> but our audience starts to pick at things if given lots of time. So if you don't get through the subject matter relatively quickly, and I have found that us watching so far, my experience of us watching a uh, keynote, if it's done live on stage or done live in a studio like Black Magic or or whatever, that we get pretty rough pretty quickly because we start picking it. We have time to pick at things. If it's pre-produced, if it's a pre-produced um, keynote, we you know we tend to just talk about the, more of the subject matter because it's moving faster and it's more interesting to us. So I, when we think about second years, we just need to know that that it can get pretty. Um, again, every time we've watched one that was live on stage, no matter whether it was Zoomtopia or Black Magic or others, um, we tend to get pretty rough about it because we have time to pick at all the things we don't like about it. And we don't do, we tend not to do that in pre-produced produced keynotes, which is probably a lesson for people who are making keynotes. Um, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, the problem I've had with the second year is that uh, we get involved in commenting on some feature and we miss the next feature that's being announced while we're commenting on the previous feature. So the, if we could broadcast it with uh, stereo audio, with the uh, audio of the of the event coming through one channel and our commentary coming through the second channel. So the Which person how I can, listen to it. can pick, like, or, pick or choose between the two would, would be advisable. Yeah. The hard part is we're breaking TOS. If we, if we broadcast the audio or video, we're, we're, we're breaking the TOS. So we really have to let people do that on their own. And what I do is I have, I split my, my, I use two different headsets. And so one headset is, is listening to the keynote and the other headset is listening to the, to the folks that are there. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, then next, keeping everyone in sync is the problem because everyone's listing on the separate stream and yeah. it's coming in. Somebody's 30 seconds ahead and goes, Oh, wow. They announced this. Yeah. Everybody yeah, right. else goes, what? It might be at some point where we can um, figure out. Uh, yeah, it might be might be somewhere we can fig- we can try to figure that out. Uh, and by the way, James Haldane says it's hard to find a hotel room between January and February fifteenth because um, there's the largest gem show in the world is happening, which sounds like it would be fun to cover too. Um, I'm not constrained by hotels because I have a lot of family in Tucson, <laughs> so, so I, I can find a I can find a living room couch in many places in Tucson. So um, anyway, um, next question from Guy Cochran in Seattle, and he's asking if covering an event with a cell phone, what would be the recommended secondary backup connection? Good, John. So this kind of just fell in our lap here recently. Uh, because of his experience in disaster management, Keenan has actually white labeled a a router that's got three SIMS cards in it, and and it's uh, perfect for streaming. Um, I'll set I'll put a link in the chat room. That sounds great. Chris, has, again, it, Chris has it up on his screen right now. If we did it, if we did that, um, I I would love to use the router. I would also be willing to just say, well, we'll see how it goes. You know, like for some of the coverage, we just have to be, you know, willing to go, you know, we're not going to be as rock solid um, as we, as we did there. Yeah. This um, thing that, this thing that Keenan is using is, is really cool because it's got the three antennas and it's priced in such a way that it includes a, a bunch of data and it's, and it's designed for somebody that doesn't necessarily need it all the time, but needs to have it up and running quickly. It's yeah. very, it's very cool the way he does this. The only concern I have there is I, I look at this as two gigabit, two gigabytes of bonded cellular data per month. That's like an hour of uh, our coverage. Uh, understood, understood. But it's designed. It, it's the purpose of it is that it's quick. It's quick mm-hmm. to set up. It's also right. a. He has a very. Um, he's worked out some sort of deal with somebody who's buying time in bulk. And then yep. selling it back to you, the, not time, but uh, data. He's buying it in bulk and selling it back to you at below market rate. That's so great. it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Gen Con is the largest tabletop game convention in North America by both attendance and number of events. It'd be kind of fun to branch out into these experiences. You find five people to work on it and we'll give you time. Like I, you know, I, I think it'd be great to cover Gen Con. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, building up a group of people that are ready to do it on a lighter, on a lighter, um, uh, coverage. And I think it'd be a lot of fun and I think we can keep on experimenting. And I think that that fits definitely into a, a place that is geek adjacent <laughs> to us. So, um, so I think that that would be, that'd be great. Um, next question. From Mike Muddy Schlegel in Raleigh, North Carolina, and on our panel, would the community be interested in covering events hosted by a single company like Zoomtopia? 
Does this differ from events that bring multiple companies together? Go ahead, Money. This was a, an unintentional Cochrane. I didn't mean to uh, set this up to answer, but uh, I didn't see anyone else. And I think my question relates around uh, you know things that bring people together or single companies. And I think for Zoomtopia, something like that that is core to our community, core to our interest, it probably makes sense. But there's probably a limited number of kind of company conventions or company events, but Zoomtopia might be one of them. Yeah, and it had its own conference. You know, it, it has its own, like, we could have covered some of the things there, though I think there wasn't probably a ton of things to cover there that we would have been, that would have been right up our alley, because a lot of it's like how to do phone systems and, and other things like that. And so uh, I think that I think that covering Zoomtopia makes sense. The reason that we didn't cover it as more fully than we did was mostly because we were doing so much production around keynote production uh, around that. I'd have time to look at it. And I think that IBC took up so much energy. It's also why I'm sensitive to like how much pre-pro we do that IBC took up so much energy that we just didn't have a lot of people ready to do more. Go ahead, Money. Yeah, and I think we had the you know wonderful advantage of having uh, the folks from Zoom come and meet with us directly and kind of give us the the key yeah. insights from that. So that was a, a we big did, We did get some good coverage there. And, and again, I... We'll see how it goes, but we may try to do our own conference, you know, around, you know, digital first productions and so on and so forth as we go, as we kind of go down the path, because I think that, um, I think that the time has come. I, I don't think we're going to get what we want until we start doing it ourselves. <laughs> I'm starting to get, I'm, you know, starting to kind of turn, like, I'm just, I just don't think, you know, and it might start with like five or six uh, companies, you know, put, you know, um, sponsoring it and having a booth, a digital first booth, which I have some ideas around the design of. Um, and um, and just really thinking through that. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Convention coverage is cool for lots of reasons, but what about museums? And he has a link there for it. Uh, these are uh, doing new and innovative things to try out new things to do, like walkthroughs, exhibits. Would that be a cool lab? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, there's a bunch of places that I'd love to just tour. I mean, so we can do co conference coverage, but I think that, you know, going out and, just going to cool places, um, and, and and that can be you know the Monterey Bay, you know Monterey Aquarium is just amazing, um, and there's and Pima Air Museum is amazing. There's lots of things like that. I want to if I can get a hold of a live view, I want to take us to, you know, there's a woman that just wanders through the the back uh, areas of of uh, Marin, and she just knows every plant, you know, and I think it'd be a lot of fun for to um, find a way for her to, to show us that kind of thing. Um, so, the, and those would be kind of interesting ways to do it. But I think going through different museums would be, make a lot of sense to take a, uh, a, a content expert and having them walk you through that and explain it. You know, I, I, I always, um, I love going to Gettysburg. My father um, is crazy about history, especially Civil War history. And going to Gettysburg, he can talk you through everything that happened at every place, everywhere, <laughs> you know? So, you know, wandering through that would be, um, you know, those kind of things would be really fun too. Go ahead, Courtney. A lot of museums may have prohibitions against photography, and so they may not be too conducive to having a live show come through, unless you make it so that it's live and not available for rebroadcast anywhere else. You know? We wouldn't we wouldn't do it unless we had their approval. Like, we won't just show up at a museum. So this would be, uh, we'll work with the museums, and I've shot a lot of stuff at Smithsonian and a lot of other places. And so it's just a matter of working with their team to, to, to get the okay, but we would absolutely do that. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. I love this idea that brings together three things, an interesting, um, 
place with interesting content so that, you know, museum could be that, but it's not the only uh, idea of something that is an interesting location. Having a subject matter expert to really kind of fill us in on some of those things that you wouldn't know just by walking through as a, mm -hmm. as a casual observer. And then third is using that as an experiment for uh, testing the live streaming and testing, yeah. you know, the, the technical side of bringing that to uh, a remote well, audience. And we've talked about this in, in other areas in the past where what's cool is you can bring content experts in. They don't have to come to that venue. They can be in Zoom. They can do what we're doing right here seeing the videos and then talking to them. So the, one of the things, if we separate the need for putting content experts on the ground, we now are able to just guide, you know, we're on comms and we just guide someone. I need you to point over here, point up here. Hey, if you look up a little bit higher and the camera goes up to that, you know, so the, so all you need on site, you might not even need a mic on site. You could literally have a camera that or a phone or whatever that is. And then you could also do things where you jump into multiple locations. One of the things we talked about, um, related to, uh, you know, like looking at stone formations. Well, what if we did a, something where we had a series of experts, six or seven of them that are in, in a panel, we have five locations around the world that we're going to stream back to that have the same type of stone structure, you know, um, say, you know, you know, just the, the way that the, the, and, and, and we can compare and contrast and ask questions and so on and so forth, I think could be pretty interesting. So that's, that's the kind of thing that, that I, I think could, and again, we're kind of, it also allows us to experiment with that. And, and I think from an educational perspective, it could get pretty interesting. Uh, next question. Next question in from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Does office hours need a couple of mobile homes to crew people around the country? Yes, John. Yes, we could definitely use those for next year's rocket shoot, Dave. That would be great. Bring bring three or four of those, and we'll Sounds we'll, we'll use those. We we will have some information on the upcoming rocket shoot for 2023, and we will have a list of people. We'll have some information on that coming soon. Can't wait. Yeah, Mitchell. Dave, I'm glad you asked this question because it brings up an interesting thought. Um, maybe we can combine a few of these things together into an office hours touring bus. And I'm, this is not a humor thing. This is I'm being serious. That basically would be our mobile studio uh, rig that we could do shows at. We could drive up to them and do them, or we could drive into them and do it. I know Orban, for example, had a really cool touring bus that they used to go and demonstrate their uh, gear uh, around the country. So it could be um, a mobile um, yeah, we've... Uh, uh, booth. It could be uh, um, our signature out there to events that uh, we, that we want to drive up to. I will say that if we want to expand our our impact on the industry, covering the events, I don't care about being in the events, like being a at the conference, but covering the events will get us a lot more. Um, you know, so building that out into a production unit, um, RVs with toy haulers on the back, super useful. Uh, next question. Next question from John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. A few of the larger e-learning training conferences: uh, Tech Learn, New Orleans, nine twelve, excuse me, nine nineteen to nine twenty one. And Association for Talent Development in San Diego, 521 to 525. And DevLearn Las Vegas, 1025-1027. Training Conferences and Expo Orlando, 213 through 215. Great. Yeah, let's keep, let's get those. We start picking them, and then I think we might even want to have people vote on who wants to do what there. Could be really interesting. Uh, next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada. Uh, again, with a question, uh, AWS reInvent. It was in Vegas last week, but I don't see next year's dates and location. Uh, it's usually right around Thanksgiving, so before, a little before or after Thanksgiving. So I think that that's probably there. I don't know how much they have to see. I think that's really the challenge there. Um, next question. 
from Hashid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida. And here in our panel, what does the live view look like? Could you describe it? Does it fit into a backpack or something? Live view is a backpack. It's a backpack with an SDI input up to four in inputs. Um, so you can have multiple cameras or you can use a live view. Um, what I'd like to do is try to do HDR <laughs> out of it. It's capable of HDR uh, 4K. So 4K HDR is something that I want to experiment with it. And I think we're going to get a, get one to play with soon. Uh, next question. And it's for me. Uh, the question is, what would an office hours booth at a large show look like? Uh, the only thing I'd be interested in a booth is if I had a studio. And I've done this before. Like uh, having studio space where we can set up where we can have round tables and talk and so on and so forth are the thing that I'm most interested in. I wouldn't, it, and then we just put screens around it. And that type of thing um, has worked well in the past. It really gives us just somewhere to meet. <laughs> like that's that, that, you know, and put our stuff and everything else. And, and then a place that we can do some interviews and so on and so forth. Just a place to get people. Yeah, go ahead, Muddy. Well, maybe it ought to be a digital first booth. So the booth is just a screen and we're all meeting in a studio we, somewhere nearby. We did talk about that for NAB of putting up a bunch of a bunch of monitors that were we were talking about monitors that would look like the gallery. And then we're all in our little gallery and you know they're, they're popping in there. Well we we might do that. Uh, we would we'd have to take a look at it. Um, next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada asking, would there be interest in covering contact center week in Las Vegas, June nineteenth through the twenty second? I don't know what it is. Um, so, but I think that if we have people that are interested in covering it, and I think, again, I, I like what Chris was talking about is that, that we could, um, I think that we can do, con yeah, I think th that covering stuff that's geek adjacent to us or something that isn't quite as like, we feel like we have to do it and we're doing it more to cover it. I think it could be a really interesting experiment for us. Um, next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel in Raleigh and right here on our on our panel. Would IBC be a good show to cover for our community in 2023? Well, we did it last year. It was quite a coverage, probably our most refined coverage. I think that IBC is a, a, a probably a given, you know, that we'd want to, you know, NEB and IBC are the, probably the two biggest conferences for us. So I think those ones are, are, are probably definitely something we want to cover. Uh, next question. Archie Trivetti from Daytona Beach, Florida, here on our panel. Would the Rolex race in Daytona Beach be a start point of a meetup to form convention ideas, test equipment, etc.? Bring your RV or whatnot and camp out for 24 hours. It could be fun. You know, one of the things is the, the Sonoma racetrack is only about 10 minutes from my house. <laughs> so, like, I was, if we want to cover some races, too, it would be easy to cover there. I, I've done some events there, so it's, uh, it's a relatively cool place to work. Um, next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel again from Raleigh, North Carolina. How could we prioritize or select which events to cover and how best to do that? Hey, go ahead, Muddy. Well, it'd be interesting to hear what other panelists think, but um, what I, um, not only selecting and prioritizing which events, but also what format to cover them in. And, and so I know one of the criteria that you've mentioned, Alex, tonight is having people don't want to do that, right? So availability, and, and, and so I'm just thinking about this decision process. Part of what we'll decide is whether there are people to cover that. Um, and so just be interested to hear how others talk, because there's been a, a ton of great suggestions. How do we yeah. operationalize that? Absolutely. Josh? Yeah, I agree, um, Muddy. Um, people that are interested basically drives anything that we do. Um, if we're doing it in a particular location, people that are local, are fantastic as a resource, or if it's a close enough proximity to where people are willing uh, to drive. Typically, we'll put out a, a form and ask people, um, you know, are you here? Are you local? Are you willing to travel and see what people's interests are? Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. 
I, I just remember from last year or this year, excuse me, it's not last yet, um, the enormous amount of planning and uh, organizing and coordinating that had to be done to do this. It's a, it's almost and probably is a full-time job for somebody to be uh, dealing with uh, special events and things that we do because we have to coordinate all the people. It's not just enough to be having a great idea about what kind of coverage is somehow we need to be able to execute it and coordinate the people yeah. needed. And I, I do think, though, that we also have to think about as we look at it in the future, we have to um, think about how much time we're putting into it and whether that time, whether the ROI is there for that. Um, I think that I, I have an opinion, again, because I've covered these, I've covered events for 20 years, that we may be putting a lot more effort into each one of these than 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 we can get ROI out of, you know, and so... And we have to kind of be a, a little bit more, I think we can pick a couple and pick a, have a team that's maybe doing some of those, but the coverage really has to get, the The problem is we're taking up, an, again, we're not making money at it and we're taking up a lot of time and we're, and I think that um, it's taking energy out of being able to cover more or wider. And so I think that we want to be careful of, of what that looks like, because I think that we, um, uh, I think that I, I would like to get there but when we start getting sponsorship and the problem is it's just kind of a chicken or egg thing. We have to, we have to build up a clean show and what we should be really looking at is how do we build up a clean show and not how do we do it at the nth degree. But it's just like, there's lots of little, we need 20 minutes that is perfect. That's what we need. <laughs> like, you know, like, and it's, and, and we haven't really gotten there yet because we're all volunteering and we're all doing stuff. But I think a lot of times we just have to pull our elbows in and just just put out this one little bit. And, and I think that there's things we can do to do that. And I think sometimes we get a little too aggressive about about all the things we could do. And I think that it's um, it's uh, it's a little harder to, um, you know, tie, tie that in. So and, and again, I think that we can we can kind of get there with that. And I think that, again, my. A lot of times I felt like just wandering around with a live view produced a cleaner show than some of the stuff we've done. <laughs> we do a little stuff where we throw things back and forth and we can, and I think we should. And I think that we want to keep figuring that out. And there's been a bunch of things that the teams have done that I wouldn't, wouldn't have done. And I thought that it was great and it was better than things that I had conceptualized. But I think we do have to kind of back up and really think about how to cover this stuff. And I think some of it's a mixture of, you know, I used to bring big cameras and then, and SLR, DSLRs and all kinds of other things. By the end, I found that, I could do a lot of raw coverage um, with my phone. <laughs> you know, like I just, I just moved to the phone, and and because I just there was so many things to cover, and I needed it to be efficient. And I would also do it all in one take. Like it was literally like I would, if I didn't get the take right, I would just do it again. And then I, uh, the other thing I did is I almost never interview anyone <laughs> unless they're really good. Like unless they are a content expert, I won't interview them. I will tell you what I'm seeing and I will show it to you, but I will not interview people because it slows the production process down. Like it, it just, and, and so I'm, and I'm all about mass. Like I, I go to a conference and I want to cover 30, 40, 50 things like not, you know, and so like, and I generally won't go to the big, bigger bigger booths because everyone's going to cover that. So, um, so anyway, so we have to kind of think about, and I think we can do all of the things we can do heavy ones. We can do light ones. We can experiment with those, but I think that we do to do this at a lighter will be a lot easier for us. And we'll end up with more, being able to cover more events if we lighten the load just a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Michael. Yeah. I'm seeing a uh, divergence here that's uh, developing. And that is on one hand, we're covering events and on the other hand, we're sort of pushing the idea of a dig digital first. And part of that ROI that you were mentioning um, should be 
let's say, prioritized based on the uh, cooperation we get from the venue we're going to. If they're oh, not, it's a hundred percent. Like if I don't, I'm not going to throw it out. Yeah, if they don't, if they don't throw. Yeah resources our way. We just can't it's invest not so much, the time. It's just not so much resources, but the big resource that we want is space. Like we didn't cover, I didn't, I just dropped NAB because I knew that they were, they had tons of open space and they wouldn't give me any. Like, you know, and, and, and when they said no, I was like, well, heck with you. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, so if I don't get, like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna wedge in, you know, now there's some, if we're gonna go lighter, it's fine. But if I know that they're just not giving us space, you know, and they have the space laying around, it's not like they're taking it away from somebody else and we're going to cover their event and they're not going to have it, have us do it. I'm not going to bother. Like, I'm not going to, you know, like I'm, you know, and we need to get to that point because we're putting in an enormous amount of effort to cover an event or to, to be part of an event. And it's not worth it if we're not getting um, what we need. Now, with NAB and IBC, what we really need is just press passes, which we can get. Um, yeah, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I wonder if we could uh, maybe train our muscles uh, in the preseason of these coverages by doing labs that are particularly suited towards uh, the things, the the essentials that you need for coverage. For example, uh, maybe we could stipulate that uh, this is a mobile coverage, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you cover something with a phone? You know, what gear and, you know, do a little, little yeah. lab setup or maybe even um, some of our second hours we've done in the past, we've done postmortems on events that we've already covered and said, well, what choices did we make? You know, which, which gear did we take? But maybe um, a second hour specifically on the gear and equipment that we use, maybe even techniques well, about how you cover events. And like what we do here, if we just do a lot of little coverage, it might be going to a store, it might be going to something else, and we do little coverage with the gear that we have, and we're constantly figuring out what makes that work and what doesn't. Um, I think we could go a long way. You know, you're right that what we need to do is do more of it. That's how you get good at something. Do a lot of it. Keep on reordering. And, and the fact that we're only doing it during the conferences makes the conferences a lot harder, you know, because we're trying to figure that all out. Um, and again, there's this chicken or egg thing where we have to do enough of them that are good so that we can get people excited. Then once people are excited, they'll first pay for the, they'll first donate gear for us to to use, which we got a little bit of, you know, we got a little bit of support from Electrosonic on the last one. Um, you know, we can probably get, you know, with LiveView lent us some stuff for IBC. So we can, you know, as we do more of these, we will get more in-kind sponsors. As we do more of that, we will get people saying, hey, we'll, we'll give you some money that might pay for flights and hotels and some food. And then it, and then it keeps growing from there. But we have to, the hard part is, is that we have to do that slowly. And we have to, you know, if we don't do the part where we can get it to a exciting show, um, then, you know, which I think that the, a lot of them have been getting better and better and better. But when we take it to the level of it really feels like a broadcast, um, then I think we'll be in another, like we just have lots of like things that we have to figure out, like audio issues, like how do we handle comms issues have been probably the biggest problem that we've had so far. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I was thinking that kind of feeds into, um, like we said, our preseason. So if we have like some gear, uh, some mm-hmm. sponsors help us out with gear, when that gear is sitting around, uh, you know, when we're not covering things, it's our preseason. That's our, that's mm-hmm. our chance to train and to use it. Absolutely. Um, next question. From Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, are the coverages one and done, or do they have value going forward for future viewing? Do vendors use the content? We've had vendors use the content before. I mean, I've had vendors, I've had a lot of vendors use my content that I've done of NAB and other people. <laughs> Monitors in Motion, I think, had my coverage of theirs on their website for like a decade. They took it down a couple of years ago, but it was it was there for a long time. And so you, you definitely can can end up 
um, being the case. Um, the main thing is it just has to be really clean. What they do more often than not, which is good for us, is they don't really use the content. They link to it. Like I covered a, I, I covered a random Samsung monitor at CES and had like 8,000 views really fast. And I realized that Samsung had put money into it. (laughs) You know, like they, because that's what what they want is if you're talking about being excited about something and it's a good, clean video and it really shows those things, they, that's way better for them than their own ads. And so what they'll do is they'll buy ad ad time, um, you know, on YouTube to push towards your content, which is of course what we want. And so, so that's, you know, we'll definitely talk, you know, do, do more of that. Um, Next question. Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. here on our panel. What have we learned from covering events in the past about staffing, carts, power, and connectivity? Uh, that they're all hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the kind of the tank approach, uh, I'm a big fan of now. I wasn't when you guys first started doing it. I was like, oh, this is a bad idea. This is going to take forever. But it did provide something, a level of coverage that I don't think anybody's ever seen, like rolling through from one place to the other. So I think that having that available is something that is new to me. Um, But I think that it it also slow, you know, you want to have a full mixture of things, like something like that moving very slowly through something, but you need someone on a backpack and people on phones grabbing stuff and doing other things. You know, like we need to think about how to pepper all of those things in to make, you know, I think that's the um, that's the process there. Go ahead, Courtney. There a process where we had a person at home base, uh, not necessarily at the con- at the uh, convention, but uh, uh, to throw back to uh, that can coordinate sending it out. You know, throwing it to the field units and multiple field units and coordinating between the two, so that you, while one is traveling to their next appointment, the other one is broadcasting mm-hmm. live. And if they're both not available at the same time, then you throw back to the. Uh, the anchor desk where we comment on what we've seen, et cetera, while we vamp until the uh, one of the field units is ready to uh, establish a contact. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. And what we learned is that um, this project's uh, showrunner and TD is next project's head uh, that does things. So um, I think we've, we've learned in some of our more recent um, events that um, having those understudy roles and doing the training um, as opposed to maybe just getting – uh, just focusing on just getting the the best folks that already know how to do that, that helps us out for the future. And being able to explain that really, um, really increases the value of our community mm-hmm. to to come and learn these things. Absolutely. Next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. Should we reach out to vendors prior to the show so we can get the appropriate level of representatives for interviews? I think we should pick out, we can pick out a handful of them. A lot of times we don't know what they're going to release until right before the event. So it's hard to know what it is. Once you get into the cycle, like I get all the, because I'm press, I get, as soon as you have a press pass, you you get, you start getting emails about, hey, we're, we're showing this stuff off and everything else. And you can make some of those picks. I, I, I will reiterate how much I hate interviewing people. Like I just, you know, like I don't need to interview someone from the, the I, it, it doesn't, I don't think it really serves us that much. I, I interview leaders in the industry. I don't like in interviewing people from the company. Like, I just feel like it's just like, it's, it, there's a handful of um, times when that works out, but almost always what we get is the marketing spiel that they were trained to talk about during that event. And I don't, I don't really care about that. <laughs> like, you know, so, so the thing is, is that, um, and, and so we have, it's our job, what I grew to, and I didn't, I started interviewing people. I interviewed people for a decade before I decided I would stop doing it because I feel like our job is to look at it 
to absorb it and to digest it and then to pr- put it back out for people to think our ver- version of what to think about, not interviewing someone from the company. Now, there's a handful of people, some of the folks from from sound devices like like Paul that we've had on before that are really, you know, um, really in it. You know, and there's so some of the sound folks and not just Paul, but but others in, at sound devices have been really great about they're just giving us the the straight dope. You know, like this is what this is what they you know think about it, and some they oftentimes won't even you know try to necessarily defend their own their own thing. So so I I, I don't, but I stopped doing it a long time ago. So I I do it if I, if there's a person that I think is a leader thought leader that happens to work at the company, I want to interview them. If they are just another marketing person, even just engineering marketing, I'm not that interested. I'll talk to them and then I'll take, I'll suck up the information and then spit it back out again. And I just find it to be a much better, a much better clip. You know, the interviews take forever. Like they just, they're just like driving, um, you know, a Chevette through mud. You know, it's just when you're trying to do production and you can't turn over the same volume when you're, because then you're dealing with, okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Oh, he's in another interview. He's running a little late. Like all that goes away when you say, just show me what you have and how much it costs. And then I turn around and go, hey, we're here at the JL Cooper booth and they've got these new things and this is what it is now. For the host, I had to learn how to keep everything in short-term memory. So I would sit there and the I would look at the price and the features and I figure out what I wanted to do and I think about it and I visualize it and then I just do it. And if I didn't get it right, I'd do it again, and then I'd post it. And now with with um, we can answer those questions a little bit more open and in a live piece. But it, it's just the interviews are painful. Um, anyway, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the ir- irony here is that they're giving us what we what they think we want because that's traditionally what's been done. And if we're going to shift the paradigm a little bit on how we do these uh, events, we need to make it clear. Uh, that we just want to speak to the right people, people not just salespeople. But I, almost it's almost never the right people at the at the at the conference. I'm just telling myself like no one has to believe me, but I've only done like a hundred of these, you know. Like and it's just you never want to you never want to interview them. Like you know you know like unless they are like they they invented the thing that you're talking about and and you know that they're going to give you. It's just it is it just slows the production process down so much. It's like all this effort goes into organizing it and, and getting it going and everything else. It is. It just truly is a quagmire. Like, and I know that no one believes me, but I mean, I've done as many of these as most people have done in the world. And I'm just telling you that as soon as you clip that off and you start just covering the event, you suddenly can just, you, it, everything goes fast. Yeah, I, I believe what I believe <sighs> what you're saying, but I think that it also helps to pre-interview people and find out what they're all about, what's going on. And that's, I don't that even, takes a production person. I just have someone, someone just needs, I don't care. Anybody that was trained to be at the booth is good enough for me. Like I can sit there and ask them questions about their, their product. And then I, and if I don't know enough to talk about the product, I just don't, I just don't cover that. <laughs> like, you know, so, so that's, you know, like it's, it's not, you know, but I, I just think that, you know, it, it's part of what's jamming up our gears is all this like interaction with the, with the companies. I'm just, I'm just letting you know, is I spent the first 10 years doing that. And it just was, I just learned not to do that anymore. Go ahead, Mark. Nothing more to add. Okay. <laughs> just, <laughs> sorry. I just, it, it's the, it's the thing that, that is just, it, it was, it was hell for us until as soon as I stopped doing that and just said, I'm just going to, I'm going to talk to the camera. The whole thing just went and suddenly I was able to triple my, my productivity. I was able to show people way more. Everyone talked about it being a way better solution. Um, and occasionally I would talk to somebody in, at, at, at something there and show me this, show me this. But it was like I showed up at the booth with a live view and I said, I got 300 people on the other side of this camera. You will stop what you're doing and talk to me right now. I didn't schedule anything. <laughs> you stopped me and talked to me right now or I'm just going to move on to another booth. 
you know, but, and, and, and anybody who understood the fact that I had 300 people on the other side of that sorted out whatever they needed to do. And they just dropped the person they were talking to because that, you know, that's some Yahoo that walked by. And, um, and, you know, I'd have a producer that was one ahead of me that just go to a booth. Who can we talk to? We're coming. The train is coming your direction. We'll be here within five minutes and you've got five minutes to decide who's going to answer questions, you know, and that was, you know, and if we get enough people, once you get known for it, that this is what we're doing, people will sort it out. <laughs> like you'd be surprised at how much, even like a Panasonic or a Canon, they will, they prioritize very effectively when you tell them what's, what's about to happen. Um, and so, especially if we get notoriety doing it, it's just, it's just a lot easier than, than uh, just plowing through things is sometimes a lot easier. Than, and I think that we can do some of these, but, but we should say, oh, we're going to do five of those. And during the, during the event are going to be the tanks and they're going to interview someone and we're going to, but that'll be like five, five hits and we don't have to try to cover, do coverage. And then, then we, um, you know, then, then we go from there. So, yeah. Um, next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel in Raleigh, North Carolina asking one world-class feature from IBC was the ability to have the panel speak to the on the ground team and exhibitors with live in-ear monitoring. I'm sure it added many complications, but seriously, who else could pull that out of? Hashtag bleeding edge. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think that was really important because uh, as as well versed as our our field teams are in particular subjects, there's a whole range of devices that are at those conventions, and we have a much better chance of finding somebody who has a uh, a question or an idea or another way to use that object that they've never seen before until they see it at the convention and sitting on the panel and having a panelist be able to ask someone in the booth for remotely about you know well can you use your widget for doing this and uh, that may uh, you know open up a whole new uh, uh, aspect or market for their product so I think that Two-way interaction is very important, and it allows us to uh, cover things much more completely than we would with just uh, listening to the talking points of the salesman that's in the booth. Yeah. And I, I readjusted some stuff on my production schedule. We have a couple more questions, which I don't want to just kick out, but I have to go to do my production. So I'm going to hand this off to Mitch to just keep running with the with the conversation. And uh, I want to thank everybody for this great conversation. And, and um, I think it's useful for us to kind of talk through it. And uh, this is the beginning of this conversation. We'll probably talk about it again next month to really kind of start. Well, I think almost every month we're going to talk about this so that we can line up. I don't think we're going to end up covering CES in a meaningful way. So it's really looking at what's after that and what are we going to cover to make all of that work. So um, so let's uh, keep the conversation going. All right. I'm going to let Mitch take over. Don't don't stop uh, until you guys are ready to stop. But I'm, I have to I have to jump pretty quickly here. See you Thanks, right. Alex. And uh, obviously lots to cover here and lots to talk about. Um, I believe uh, we still have some other people that want to answer this question. Mike, uh, are you in there for... I am, yeah. I've got my hand raised for this one. And it's interesting that this question was stacked after the last one because it, you know, Alex was just sharing his distaste for uh, interview and it's slowing the pace of the information down. However, I thought it elevated the conversation. And as Courtney pointed out, being able to ask some of those questions, bring the whole power of the panelists to that kind of moment. I also think it differentiates office hour coverage, office hours coverage from anything else that's out there. So from a technical standpoint, I think it really was masterful. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is, is marrying the two of keeping a fast-paced conversation, if there are ways to stack up questions days in advance so we can solicit 
what questions would you want to ask to Black Magic Design or some of the other vendors, you might be able to kind of build up, pre-build a richer, quicker conversation than, than that real time. But kudos to the events team from 2022. Very impressive. Thanks, Muddy. Uh, Josh, you next. We have tried um, accumulating questions ahead of time. Um, there are some complications with that that you may not expect. Um, it's not saying it's not something we would do, but um, I would say scale oftentimes solves that problem. So if you have enough people and, and exerted, uh, you know, have that focused energy on there, um, we have that brain power available and we can react much quicker. I think probably the way to shore up that interaction is to make sure that the response time, the bandwidth going from us in the production out to the field, make sure that's nice and uh, sturdy and re and resilient. Um, some of the ways that we've done that before is um, we've used audio, of course, on comms, but having a visual element as well. So having um, the iPad that's facing the talent, we've had some really uh, interesting uh, things that have happened. Some of our events, you may have noticed that the people being interviewed, they see the questions as well. It's something that that shows out to the the field, and they're they're seeing it. And I think we even corrected our our anchor for a while. Like actually, no, they asked this question on it. So very, yeah, very impressive of of doing that. Not too much. Uh, that's not really not too much of a lift, but um, I think that doing that type of interaction is something that adds value to us covering an event. Because if you watch any other show, you're just going to be a passenger, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, as good as their team can do, that's as, that's as the best interaction you're going to get. But if you come around for us, we're going to take you uh, to the event and you'll actually have an option. If you ask the best question, we'll have a way of moving that up the pike, getting that out to our field anchors and having it answered. So I think that's a real value add to the community. Um, it does have some technical, um, uh, you know, challenges that we have to overcome to make that work. Two-tiered approach of having the app, uh, the video, and having the audio is helpful. But I think if we practiced that and worked out the bugs, um, that's a really, really featured event. It also sets us apart from other people doing this. And I don't know how many other people are actually uh, doing this on-the-spot interviews live worldwide like we are. So I think it's a it's a definite benefit. Courtney? Yeah, the problem that uh, Mike pointed out uh, with, you know, coming up with questions ahead of time and preparing for each individual uh, a booth that we'll be visiting is a lot of times we don't know what they're going to be announcing at those booths because they keep it a secret until the day of the show. So uh, preparing questions for a non-existent product is kind of tough. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, the main question we ask when we get to the booth is, hey, what's new this year? And uh, we may not know what to ask, what questions to ask until we see what they're doing. And the, the fact that we have this two-way communication with the, the panelists able to actually ask a question when we hear something about the new, the new widget or product uh, is really valuable. Next question. Is coming in from... Douglas Carmichael, what would you think of covering Knobcom? Um, I don't think anybody has their hands up for that, but uh, I guess a plethora of knobs would be an interesting thing. I thought I saw them all, but uh, I do like my knobs too. So that's uh, certainly a good uh, example. Courtney? I, 
I don't know. Is that a sound mixing uh, for sound mixers uh, or is it, you know, Groundhog Day at Gobbler's Knob? I don't know. <laughs> all I'm knobs not familiar of all kinds. Yes. There you go. Thanks. Appreciate that. All right. Next question from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. Uh, what are the techniques office hours can use to turn the tables on physical events? Find interesting representatives and manufacturers to invite to our show. And uh, since you asked a question, Josh, you get to answer it. And it looks like Josh is on his way. Well, looks like he's on his way out. Uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, turning the table on physical events. It's like we're kind of promoting on one hand that um, that the whole idea of the classic uh, conference um, and convention is sort of outdated and people are uh, attending less and less. So I don't think we have to do anything to uh, turn the tables on them. I think it's going to naturally go that way. I, lo I love the idea of having a tour bus or something uh, that does digital first because that, the interesting about that is that it's mobile. It's going everywhere. It's a, it's a efficient use of our, um, our resources. And uh, if we have that, it's also kind of a great marketing and branding thing. Mike? Well, with, with, with brevity in mind, we've talked about digital first, and we're seeing a little bit of experimentation with that. But I think the thing that office hours can do is demonstrate what awesome looks like and lead the way. Thanks. Appreciate that. Next question, Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Double robotics, double two pre telepresence robot. Good for remote cameras at small conventions or no? Um, I just know that the robot that taps me on the shoulder at the local grocery store when I'm uh, shopping irritates the heck out of me, and I could uh, I could do without that. Courtney, the problem with all those is connectivity, and um, those little robots. A lot of times, they're not really set up for you know wireless streaming both directions, and they get them into a convention, and they're just swamped by all the RF, and they you know it breaks down and. You can't really get a good connection. Maybe somebody's come up with a good one that has a reliable, you know, multicellular bonded links in and out. Uh, we'd have to see to make sure it would work in a convention type situation. Most of those are designed to work in an office type situation where, you know, you have reliable Wi-Fi and not 500 people trying to get online at the same time. What a great second hour. I didn't uh, think we'd uh, do one hour, much less an hour and eight minutes. So uh, good job uh, answering panel. We appreciate it. Uh, lots of great questions in there. Lots of things to think about and lots of organizing that has to be done to make this work. It's, uh, it's a tough project to uh, in, do one show, much less four or five or six. And I think that is going to be an ongoing process. Like uh, Alex said, we'll make this a regular uh, topic that we do. So that wraps up things for uh, today's program. Uh, looking ahead to tomorrow's show, we'll be talking about crafting an effective lesson, plans on using protocols. Uh, today is the last day, and I should let uh, Josh talk about this, but he is gone, uh, is the last day to record yourself videos for our upcoming Kilo show. So if you have a special video that you want to submit, this is the only day uh, you have left to be able to do that. And again, shorter is better. Um, looking for the video for uh, icon voting items in the Kilo Show, so make sure you go in there and vote uh, in, on uh, Discord, and it's under the Future Shows category. So uh, that wraps it up for today. I want to thank everybody for making this possible. Of course, Alex, our, our leader and uh, head uh, host uh, for doing things that he does. Uh, all of you on the panel, thank you very much. 
And of course, the uh, the many people on the back end uh, that make this show what it is. Uh, we thank you. And uh, looks like that wraps it up for another Friday edition of OfficeHours.Global. Thanks, folks. Take care of yourselves.